podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stop antagonizing Candy. You're going to blow this whole charade, or more than likely get us both killed. And I, for one, don't intend to die in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, USA. I'm not antagonizing. I'm intriguing him. You're, you're yelling abuse at these poor slaves? I recall a man who had me kill another man in front of his son, and he didn't bat an eye. You remember that? Yeah, of course I remember. What you said was, was that this is my world. And in my world, you gotta get dirty. So that's what I'm doing. I'm getting dirty. In 1858, slavery is rampant and the Civil War is imminent. A slave named Jangle teams up with bounty hunter Dr. King Shelton to hunt down the South's most notorious and wanted criminals with the promise of winning his freedom. After a long and successful winter of tracking down wanted men and honing vital hunting skills, Jangle and Dr. Schultz devise a plan to rescue and free Jangle's wife, Broomhilda, whom he lost to the slave trade long ago. His quest leads him to an infamous Mississippi plantation known as Candyland and its brutal proprietor, Calvin Candy. If their plan is to succeed, they must stay one step ahead of Calvin and his treacherous organization. Columbia Pictures and the Church of Tarantino podcast present Django and Chains 10th Anniversary Special. The D is silent. Payback won't be. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to a very special episode of the Church of Tarantino podcast. I'm the Reverend Scott Kay, and I want to thank you all for joining us as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of our Lord and Savior Quentin Tarantino's most successful film to date and second foray into revisionist history, Django Unchained. Joining me again today to help me close out the show's first season and to help celebrate and take a retrospective look back on this landmark film are many of those mangy reservoir dogs, I'm talking about Mr. Sean Wheeler, CEO of Scareflare Records and the host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, and Mr. Steve Smith, host of the Wake Past Cool Podcast and my Cheeky Bastards Podcast co-host. Welcome back, gentlemen, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, everybody. We were supposed to have a third. It was supposed to be the podfather, Mr. Petros Petsilovas, but apparently... He may be a big football fan, and those of you are listening to this almost a month after we're recording this, and unfortunately, his English did not score and did not beat the Americans as they draw with them, which is, in my opinion, a pointless. They played 90 minutes, looked at each other, and then went home. Nothing happened. So did they actually play a game? It's like the tree in the forest if no one's around. Did it actually happen if no one scored? I don't think so. Anywho, he is under the weather, and so instead of us trying to drag someone else in, it's just going to be the three of us. A nice little threesome. Two days before New Year's Eve when this comes out, so we'll be ending 2022. And what better way than to go out with a bang? We're talking about the beautiful 10th anniversary of Django Unchained, which came out 10 years ago on Christmas Day, which when this was released was about five days ago. 
Gentlemen, welcome back. You were my Reservoir Dogs, and now you're my, what are you in this movie? What can we say? Dr. King, the Schultz, are you, yeah. We have to be very careful in what I like call you. Very, you call you the Reservoir Dogs. Yes, very careful. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mr. Wheeler, what has been going on in your world since we last heard your sultry voice on very the Reservoir Dogs? Voice. And then, as my guest, on our Hateful Eight episode um by the time this airs hopefully the grand duel should be in-house and shipping along with every other record i have that is supposed to be like they're fucking three to four months late so hopefully all that and i never really talk about the splatterhouse podcast we are we just released a episode on texas chainsaw massacre 2 um we did brain scan and then we'll have a christmas episode about santa claus killer movies and horror movies set in that, you know, like we're talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night, Black Christmas. And then we're doing over two months, we're doing like the five best. We each, we each pick one. We're kind of doing what you guys are doing with the cheeky bastard stuff where you guys like make lists and shit a little bit. And our viewpoints are so different that we're picking um, our five favorite remakes and least favorite remakes for oh. horror film. And yeah, it should get interesting because him and I, like, we don't agree on anything with movies. So this should be should be cool. Awesome, because speaking of the Cheeky Bastards, my Cheeky Bastard co-host is here. We have just recorded, but by this time has been out for almost a month. It's getting closer to the January episode. Wow. But uh, we uh, decided to have a uh, Bruce Willis-themed Christmas oh, episode. Geez. And, um, you know, we may or may not have said that Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie ever made. So 90? it's not up for discussion. We're just saying that's what it is. So you can all get up in arms, but I'm just going to tell you, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, it's happened. Wow. So I hope you enjoyed it because it's happened. Steve. Anything in your yeah. world besides us being the cheeky bastards? What is going on with the way past cause? Have you finally wrapped it up? It's over. It's over. Did you do a final episode? Or did you just say, fucking you ghosted the whole world? Yeah, that's what I did. Fuck it. <laughs> um, but no, because I haven't said anything, I can just do an episode whenever I feel like it. Because I was part of a network before. So there was like a kind of um, a schedule. And then now I'm on my own. It's like, ah, I don't need to stick to any schedule. I can do one when I want. And and the fact of the matter is, at the moment, I don't feel like I've got any great music to share. But I'm always building stuff up. So one of them, one may drop pretty soon. That's all I'm saying. You know, the wheels are in motion. So, so you're doing like a Tarantino thing. Yeah, and other than that, I'm just fighting off abuse from... Um... Magnolia fan. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> Man. Uh... I'm fighting off for some abuse from some very sensitive Americans because of my opinions on... Um, on certain movies, certain, like, certain franchises that may or may not involve George Lucas and, George and Steven Spielberg. Maybe I went, maybe I went a little bit too far. Maybe <laughs> you almost killed me. I almost hit another fucking vehicle. I was laughing so hard. At you. <laughs> well, you know, I think we should have you on there soon. I'm sure you must have a controversial opinion or two. Yes, I, I I have to say, if you enjoy some of the bullshit we say, you'll really enjoy the Cheeky Bastards podcast once a month. Hey. Usually the first Tuesday of the month. Yeah. I mean, what else the fuck do you have to do on a Tuesday that you can't just yeah. jump in and listen to us fucking just say some some shit that we do believe, though? I would like oh, to point this that is out. No contrary, yes. This is no contrarian bullshit. We are not These trying to just say beliefs. shit for shit's sake. Yes, we are actually no, 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 no. That's too easy. That'd be too easy. And we have an email address and everything. You can... Just respond back to us. You know, I love so. that you guys are talking shit, but you're researching it. <laughs> we research, well, our, very, research our bullshit very carefully. Yeah. Thank you very much. We believe the shit we're saying, but we have some facts to back it up. You know, we don't yeah. just say but, things to say things. We're not just yeah, please, we're not going full yeah. American here. We're not just going no, full. Please email full us. Please, please email us with some abuse. We love it. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, that's it. Speaking of abuse, I think it's time for us to get into a very abusive movie called Django Unchained. Ten years ago, I was a younger man. Steve, you were... 40 going on. No, I was still, I was still yes, an old man. Yes, but you were just in the beginning of your 40s. Oh, great days. Great days. You still had no gray hairs on your on your junk. You were still <laughs> in the vibrant times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, but now here we are, surly and damn near closer to death. Tarantino yeah. was just about to turn 50, so that's kind of important. But True. we'll start with Steve. When do you first recall seeing this film, and what was the impression it left on you? Okay, so I saw the movie, I believe, about two weeks before it came out in theatres in the UK. Because when I was a member of the Oscar Academy, I was handed a screener <laughs> copy. Um, no, one of my friends got hold of a copy, so <laughs> to speak, and I was faced with a dilemma of do I wait the two weeks to see it on the big screen, or do I watch it right now? So I watched it straight away, and I was a bit disappointed. At the time. Whether not seeing it on the big screen was responsible for that, I, I don't think I'll, I'll never know. You know, we, we throw around our little um, top nine Tarantino movies now and then. We do. It's on the bottom end for me still, but something has to be. You you're know, something you're has to be. jumping well, the no, order No, no, I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, you know, yeah, I, fair. It was just an awkward situation where, I mean, I watched it a couple of days ago. It, it's, this is one going to be one of those awkward episodes where it comes across like I don't like a film that I've got nothing but amazing things, you know, to say about it. So it has something has to be at the bottom end. It, you're, no, I 100% get with you. You know, I, and, I'm it with is, you. and it is Django, but I watched it, like I say, three nights ago, and I just have got a million things I could say about it that I just think are amazing. So there's not many directors you could really say that about. You know, if I looked at the arse end of... Scorsese's filmography. There's films there I've got not a lot to say at all. Probably nothing enthusiastic anyway. So, you know, that says a lot about Tarantino that one of my least favourites is still a goddamn amazing movie. (laughs) So, yeah, so I saw it before it hit theatres. I wish I would have seen it on the big screen. That may have, you know, left a better impression on me. But over the years, it's certainly, my opinion of it has certainly changed for the better. Mr. Wheeler. I saw it opening day, 10 o'clock, matinee in minnesota and i was like one of four people in the theater (laughs) so i didn't get to see it really with a full crowd until i saw it that night again i went with a friend but it's i saw it twice in one day and i walked out like it was just like this is this is fucking amazing like but i'm a huge western fan and a lot of people don't like westerns so like i walked out and it's fucking great and i i don't remember who i went with that night but i loved the movie and thought it was like you know i thought it was better than inglorious bastards and then I, I went through a phase for a bit where I didn't like it as much. And then it's picked back up where it's, you know, like I love it even more now than when I first saw it. But the movie, there's so much going on in it. And it's so long. It's re- it's actually really, really long for, you know, what is it, mm. like two hours and 45 yeah. minutes? And a lot, yeah. there's a lot yeah. going on, yeah. a lot of characters coming in and going out, a lot of stuff going on. So, and then, you know, like you think about that and then you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is like all over the place. There's so much shit going on in that movie that Django yeah. seems tame compared to it. So, <laughs> yeah, And it's one of the, the few almost fully linear stories that he tells, you know, like a few minor flashbacks, you know, for, there's no, there's no, to give us caught there's up. There's no wasted but... film at all. Like or you no. watch it now and it's like, it doesn't seem like you're sitting for two hours and 45 minutes. I feel like I, it's as fucking long as the Goonies. 
Shut up, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing is, is when you watch the film, you forget for the first half that there's Leonardo DiCaprio and Samuel Jackson have not shown up yet to about an hour and a half in. And then after that hour and a half of being with them, you forget the first half of this film because they're like split. You know, it's like two different movies, and you, but they're both fantastic. You just, you know, you forget the first half and the second half until you get to those points. Yeah, he could have split this and added more to it because I know there's, I've read the comic book and there's a lot of stuff he cut out mm -hmm. and it, he could have done a Kill Bill with it. I'm glad he didn't, but there's... there's there's a part of me that's like, fuck, man. Like, I wonder what else was going on that he cut out and didn't film. And, you know, what's that's probably half of it's because of the Weinsteins not wanting to give money. And then, you know, all the, all the other shit that went on with them at the time. So, yeah. Now we'll start with you, Sean. How much of this film should Kanye West get credit for creating? <laughs> or should he just shut the fuck up already? Right. For those of you not in the know, and we're recording this right after Thanksgiving. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, Kanye West and Kanye West Fashion, after attacking the Jewish community for reasons that no one understands, decided to then a couple days later say that in a crazy moment of his that he pitched to Jamie Foxx and Quentin Tarantino, Django Unchained, as a part of his music video for Gold Digger. Nobody yes. listens to him anyway. I know. I'm just, it's fun. I mean, we can't, we can't I skip can't past that. We can't skip past I the fun. I can't believe I knew the, the title of the, of the song. song. Yeah. Oh, if you, if you read the article and you read, you'll find the name of the song. <laughs> you grumpy old bastards. So, Sean, how much, how much you giving Kanye credit? Um, so, Kanye West. As you say this, are you wearing your MAGA loafers? No, I've got my, I still believe, <laughs> Lost Boy shirt on. Kanye West is a very rich idiot, and I wish we could deport him somewhere else and unclaim him. That's all I have to say on the subject. And Mr. Tarantino came right out and said he pitched something completely different, and, uh, like, he didn't come out and say he's crazy, but he did. And all like, <laughs> so, yeah. Mr. Smith, as the head of the English chapter of the Kanye West fan club, how do you feel about what your your favorite artist has said? Uh, I I haven't even heard really Kanye West Kanye West music. I'm not a fan at all. But when he said that, obviously he he these fucking crazies a shit house rat, isn't he? So he'll say it. The guy will say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically said that, yeah, I, I met with... He just linked Tarantino to some music video he was considering making and never fucking did <laughs> that had a slave in it. And therefore, I invent, apparently Kanye West fucking invented Django. The best part of this whole thing is, here's how dumb Kanye truly is. Or maybe because he's not in his meds. And I think that's a real thing, is ever since he stopped taking his meds for bipolar disorder years ago, because he says his bipolar disorder is his superpower... Jamie Foxx is on the song and in the video, obviously, for this song that we're talking about, Gold Digger. He then thinks, well, you know what? Jamie Foxx was in Django. I may have talked to Tarantino one time. I think if I put those two together, it makes real sense that I really wanted to have a song about women not wanting to be with broke guys. How does that equate to Django and change your video? I don't know. But what he doesn't remember is that Will Smith was the first person that Tarantino wanted to play the role, not Jamie Foxx. That's how fucking dumb true. he is. is how much true. he forgets his own lie yep. that he's trying to tell. Originally, Jamie Foxx wasn't even considered for the role till Will Smith turned it down. Then Jamie Foxx came on board. Anyways, yeah, I just thought it'd be fuck fun to Kanye talk Kanye about Kanye's yeah. fuckface. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, fuck yeah fuck, I mean, Will Smith would have been terrible. That. I think we might get into that later. I don't know if I do or not. But Will Smith would have been awful in this part. And I don't think anyone's going to see Will Smith in the same light anymore. I think it's over with. Actually, I think he should just go villain. I think he should be like in the WWE in wrestling. And I think he should just go total heel now. I think he should just live with it. Go heel. Fuck it. I think he should start coming out just holding his dick and saying all kinds of crazy wild shit. He might as well do a little Kanye West. Don't try yeah, to go back maybe. to being. Don't go back to being the Fresh Prince. No, be Big Willie. Come out and start pimp slapping people every time. I actually, agree, I agree. Well, with that. Right? Well, Own it. Well. Own it. People will actually look at for a former president of ours. People somehow are just drawn to that kind of magnetism, that kind of Calvin Candy magnetism. Go with it, Will Smith. You heard it here in the Church Tarantino. Just hold it. Own it. Don't come out and apologize. Start slapping everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Smith, since you've already told us this, you piece of shit, where would you rank this film in your Tarantino filmography? So It's a number eight for me. Now, would you please explain your English math to everyone, since we all know he made nine films, and you did say something to me off air about how it's at the bottom, but it's only eight for you because of why? Please, I mean, you got to give us oh, all actually, of it. Yes, yes, this yes. tell is, us this, all. Could, this will just go on too long if I really go into it, yeah. Cause, well, we don't have Petros on, so I don't have to cut out a whole this. bunch of windbag yeah, stuff, so okay, let's go. So how can I say this? So he's made nine movies, right? Okay, Death Proof, as far as I'm concerned, that's not a good fucking movie at all. But that's for a whole... That is not, a, in my opinion... He, bro- he broached the subject because he fucking knew, Yeah. He said, that's his, I can't remember the words he used, but that's his least popular movie. He wanted to get in there before everyone started slagging him off for it. But yeah, so it's not at the very bottom, but so the bottom end, but between Django and Death Proof, there's a massive drop. I, I do think, you know, like I said, something has to be number eight. That could have been, like you said, could have been Inglorious. It's between Inglorious and Django for me. Being at the bottom end. And it's just a very thin line, you know? It's not like Django's a piece of crap that's at the bottom of the pile. That's not the case at all. Um, so, yes, it just happens. Something has to be at that bottom end. And it, in this case, it's Django. But again, like I said, I watched it a couple of nights ago. This is an amazing movie with so many amazing things in it. It's just unfortunately, just there's a couple of issues I've got with it that we'll get into later on that irk me, you know, when you just think, you, I think there's just a couple of things he could have done better, and that's why loses out to Inglorious just that little, little slight amount. But we'll get into it, I'm sure. But yeah, so it's just number eight. So those of you at home, just to reiterate, Tarantino has made nine films, and the worst film, is number eight at being Django, and apparently Death Proof is not even considered a film anymore. So we have eight not films in Steve's world. Not to me. One Mr. Wheeler, yours and your retort. We're not talking about Death Proof, though. Uh, you're right. But Mr. Wheeler's facial expression when you said that, I thought he was going to lose his mind. So, Mr. Wheeler, where does it fit in yours? And then you may retort to your English friend, Mr. Smith's response. So it's my third favorite behind Kill Bill. And uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has just crept up there because I keep watching it over and over and over again. And then it's Django. I also, in my notes, I feel that the hardcore Quentin Tarantino faithful rate the film in the middle to the end of their tops. And he's doing it, right? My brother's the same thing. It's his worst movie. My dad, too. It's his worst movie. But my dad, I mean, we've talked about my dad on here before. He fucking hates everything. So (laughs) I was just looking and like even Death Proof is still rated 65% like online, you know, with if that was my worst movie in my career, I would be like, I'd die a happy man. Like, it's, I love Agreed. the fucking movie. Uh, then again, like, it's really hard to rate these because I love all of them on different levels. Like, you can't, <laughs> it's like, you know, my favorite samurai film of all time would be Kill Bill. My favorite 
well, I guess not, not my favorite Western of all time, but I, I guess, I don't know, he's allowed to have his opinion on this. It's just, you know, I'm glad he's not bringing up Indiana Jones again. <laughs> <laughs> but it is probably an, the toughest thing to talk about. Like, you can probably go through one through five and you feel comfortable. But then when you start to think about six through nine, you start to get mad because you start going, these films are so good. But compared to all of his work, I like these five better. But yet compared to other people's work, it's like, fuck you. They're like number one over your shit. You know what I mean? So it is it is a tough thing to look at him and be like, all right, so Django's number six. But then you're like, fuck it, it's better than six. Because you're starting to think about other people's yeah. films. You know, you go, this is way better than so-and-so's this or this. and th-, You know, and then you're going, it's better than any fucking goddamn Michael Bay film ever. I was like, Death Proof? In only Spanish, and I don't get subtitles <laughs> over anything Michael Bay has done. I don't need to know anything that they're saying, and it's still better than a Michael Bay film. Fuck Michael Bay. My least favorite is Inglorious Bastards, and it's not, I love the film. It's just the one that I watch, because it's the five languages. You have to fucking watch that movie if you don't speak the other languages. And it's the one that I watch the least, and I think it's my least favorite because of that, but yet, fucking movies are five out of five for me. So... I mean, we're, like, well, no, this how- is it. That's kind of like what I'm saying, really, is like the difference between Inglorious and Django to me is minimal, you know? And yep. um, so it has, something has to be at that bottom, you know, end, and that's just the way yep. it is. And it's so, not yeah. Reservoir Dogs. I'm with you. I mean, I, I know, like, which is, I think is your favorite, right, Steve? Reservoir Dogs? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. My when, fight, we re- yes. when we recorded Reservoir Dogs, it was. So it's been a couple yeah. months. Well, no, so no, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, compl- it's just so fucking complicated because I would have to say Reservoir Dogs is my favorite Tarantino movie, but when it comes to like the best 10 movies of all time, I would probably put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood above yeah. it, and I know that makes no, no fucking sense. No, it does. Favorite, favorite films, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, when you make a list of your favorite films, it's different than if you ask me to make a list of the best movies ever made. It's going to be different. Well, yes. I can't load yeah. Them. yeah, it's just something I've been. It's just something I've been toiling with lately, and because of the Django. You thing. You totally could have yeah. like thought that Django sucked, and then you went up and got and took your piss here ten minutes ago and come back. You know, it's all right. Yeah, 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 it yeah. Changes yeah. that quick. Yeah, yeah. When I watched it a few nights ago, that's probably the most I've ever enjoyed it. So that's something as well. And it keeps getting you know. better the more that you watch it. So I would love to do this podcast again in 10 years, and you're going to be like, you know what? I was wrong. (laughs) Fuck Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) The movie hasn't aged. Fucking piece of shit movie. (laughs) Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, so yeah. Again, you know, yeah, it's just like, you know, if you're doing a top 10 or a top nine, even you, something's got to be at the bottom and that's when you've got to be very critical, you know, and you've got to be like, right, okay, how does this make me feel? How does that make me feel? What would I have done? You've got to be critical, man. I think if you're a true fan of film, you have movies that you love, but you also know when you see a masterpiece. It may not be your favorite movie, but you know like that movie is everything. And it may not be the one you go back and revisit, but you may be like, man, when I saw that movie, that was something unbelievable. Yeah, and it can be the difference between the subjective and the objective. Yes. You know, Plan 9 from Outer Space, say... You know, objectively, isn't a good movie. But you can enjoy the hell out of that it's movie. Fun. But yeah, it's very fun. You know, there's a lot of films like that where you just yes. like, you know, it's like, uh, complicated, you know. Well, to bring in Mr. Petros, who's not here, and his favorite actor, and one of mine, Mr. Nicolas Cage, a movie called Drive Angry that came out in like 2011, I think. Not a great movie. It's a B movie, but it's a fucking blast to watch. It is so much fun to watch. He has sex with a woman while also in a gunfight. That's so ridiculous. It's just genius. It's, yeah, so I, I'm with you. Is it going to yeah. be in the top movies of ever no but is it enjoyable as hell yeah i'll pick it over like a lot of really great movies sometimes be like i'm gonna have so much more fun watching this then and i love this movie but like i don't want to go and see 
uh, Schindler's List, like that's a movie that takes a lot out of you to watch. So if someone's like, you want to watch Schindler's List tonight? You want to watch Drive Angry? It's like, if I'm in the mood to be like, you know, I want to Drive Angry. I'm going to have a lot more fun watching Drive Angry. Now, I'll learn a whole lot more from watching Schindler's List and it'll be a lot better movie, but I'm going to have a better time watching Drive Angry than I will watching a horrible reenactment of the fucking Holocaust. But I, I also, like these movies, like I just said that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my second favorite. I walked out of the theater disappointed that night. And I think with Tarantino, my expectations are so high because every movie just fucking keeps amping up. You know, even you went from Django to Hateful Eight where some people thought that that he was taking a step down and he wasn't. He upped Mm -mm. his storytelling. In my opinion, I like Hateful Eight better than Django, in my opinion. And and like you said, I've grown into Hateful Eight even more. Like where Once Upon a Time is your favorite movie to be watching recently. For me, it's it's the Hateful Eight for the last couple of years. I I just love that storytelling. Like like you said, when I walked up the first time, I was like, do I really like this? Was it good? And then it just like the more I've watched, I'm like, yo, no, this is fucking absolutely fantastic. I love every moment. I drove out of the theater too. Like I was just like, that was the greatest fucking movie. My, I looked over at my brother and he's like, that was fucking great. And my dad, I told you, my dad's in the backseat. I'm like, what's wrong with you? That movie fucking sucked. They didn't talk that much. And there's not all that raping and shit going on and all this, you know, like he just, you know, who kills Bruce Dark? Like, you know, like so, you know, like he had like this huge monologue. He like was preparing for like the hour and a half drive home that he just let us have it on. And I was like, oh, whatever, you're old. Well, you know what though it does is it's, it's a great thing because having done his cinema speculation and watched some of the movies, there's a big difference between what people used to watch and what we watch now. Yep. When you fall in love with a movie, you like it the way it is, and that's the time frame you come from. So your dad came from a time frame where, as Tarantino talks about, there was almost every character had to be likable for you to like them. And then like yeah. people like Sergio Leone changed it when they make Henry Fonda a villain in Once Upon a Time in the West. Great. You know I what I mean? Like him, so it's the, it's it's the, just the changing of people the way they watch films and. You know, some people may love this new time, and if they're born in that time, it makes sense where some of no, us absolutely. don't as much because yeah. we miss the films the way they were made when we were being, yeah. you know, we were Because so. I was speaking to a friend about this the other day, so he asked me, um, he was looking at film soundtracks, funnily enough, to buy, and he said, what's Suspiria? You know, because he's not, he's not really a movie fan, really, but he was just looking at soundtracks on a website. And I said, you know, I explained it. And he said, is the film good then? And I was like, well, he probably wouldn't like it now, for the, seeing it for the first time. But if you grew up watching that movie, I've been watching that movie for 25, uh, yeah, well, fuck me. Oh, it's depressing. 30, like, years at least. <laughs> but maybe 35 years. So, like you say, you know, yeah, if you watch films now, to go back to something so singular and unique back then, that's a hard that's a hard sell, probably. Yeah. You know, so um, Hateful Eight, I always thought, was such a dark, serious movie for him. And I think that's bound to put off someone who loves Pulp Fiction, which is a comedy, yeah? Yeah. Full yeah. of humour, isn't it? Yeah. Hateful Eight, there's some very dark humour in it, but it's very, very dark as humour goes, <laughs> for him especially, you know? So, yeah, you know, it's, it's complicated. But, um, yeah, Hateful Eight, I said that is a dark movie, and that's kind of I think that's kind of middle tier for me. Well, this is a good segue for you to say that we have some controversial and dark stuff because we're going to jump right in to our discussion on the 10th anniversary, as only three white men can, and that is to talk about the elephant in the room, the shadow that hangs over the movie, the use of the N-word. From time to time. Adult supervision is required. And like I said, who better to discuss the use of the N-word of films than a panel of middle-aged white men? The word is spoken 116 times in this film. Mr. Spike Lee has been a huge detractor of QTs because of the use of N-word in his films, especially this one. However, Mr. Samuel Jackson 
has had QT's back the entire time, saying he doesn't use the word frivolously or to be provocative. It's natural speech for the characters who speak it. Now, how do each of you feel about his use of the N-word, not just in this film, but all his films? And I will start with Mr. Wheeler. Um, So I don't mind it. I don't think that he's grandfathered in or anything, you know, because he's been using it so long in his films or anything. I think that it's part of the game with the subject matter that he's you know, that he's doing. But as a society, we continue to try to cover up the America's dark past, which you covered, uh, you know, when you were talking about the film the first time. I mean, who are we really lying to by saying that they didn't talk like that back then? And I personally think that the Old West was more like Blazing Saddles than it was like True Grit, as far as the racism goes. You know, because you never heard John Wayne, you know, the the few movies I've watched of it or, you know, any of the old Westerns and stuff, they they kind of beat around the bush with it a little bit, where I think he's kind of sopping the word with his work a little bit, where it's not as shocking anymore, like when I hear it. Although I I don't really have a problem with the use of it in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, you know, as much, but I think that it's a lot, it's the showing that the character is that way and the characters using those words but then you read cinema speculation and you hear about him going to all these you know the black exploitation movies when he was a kid a really little kid with all black audiences and all of the mom's boyfriends were black and you know like he is like quoting all of the stuff that you know movie reviews and stuff in that book and it's from a black standpoint and then i told you i was listening to the audiobook well the first and last chapters, he actually narrated and he's doing it, a lot of it in a black voice, you know, as, as only he can. And especially the last, the Floyd chapter at the end where he's doing, you know, like he does this whole section where, you know, like what did Floyd think of Don Knotts? And like, you know, he's doing Floyd's voice and it's, you know, obviously a black man through the whole thing. And I think he does kind of get a pass on it a little bit. But it's also the subject matter, because if you're going to go after him, you have to go after 12 Years a Slave, Birth of a Nation, all those movies. How many versions of Roots are there out there now that are, you know, using it as well? So that, that's my opinion on it. I, I think that he softened it with his work, but you hear it in other stuff and it's like, but then again, I was watching Saturday Night Live there and it was Chappelle and he said the N-word three times during his opening monologue. That wasn't edited where I saw it. So I don't know. Mr. Smith. Well, I've got no problem with him using that word. The way he uses it, because, I mean, like, to get one thing out of the way, from the age of 12 to now, I've pretty much grown up on a steady diet of hip-hop my whole life. So to hear the word, you know, I'm more than used to hearing the word. That's just on a personal level, like. Yeah, especially since the 90s with the gangster rap here in America. Yeah, and yeah, especially yeah. now, it's really prevalent. Like, it's really... It's, it's, it's thrown around a lot now in, in modern hip-hop. But I'm still listening to the old 90s stuff, obviously. But um, when I hear it in his films, there's the intent of who's saying, okay, so Reservoir Dogs, they say, you know, you're talking about criminals. Yeah, low life, scumbags, you know, in... Obviously, in Jackie Brown, you know, Max Cherry's not saying it. No, I don't believe a single white well, character no. says it <clears> in exactly. Jackie Brown. If I'm no, mistaken, no. I'm even, even, even um, you know, you know, now in Pulp Fiction, <laughs> when Tarantino himself uses the word, yeah, okay, bad taste may be, but it's the punchline to the joke that the fact that Cutie's wife in the scene is black yeah. because he's throwing the N word around. Like, nobody's business. And you're just thinking, well, you know, he's obviously a racist scumbag. And then they say, you know, when Bonnie gets home and then that cuts to her and she's a black nurse. Yes, like, black And that's the punchline to the joke is all this time you, he's even more of a scumbag than he thought because he's, his wife's black and he's been, he's been throwing the word around. When it comes to the hateful... I'm sorry, when it comes to Django, I'm sure the white people throwing that word around used it, would have used it a hell of a lot more than they do in the movie. 
In fact, they may not even have used the word in the movie. They would have probably just hit the sleigh. We're talking about some bad fucking people here, yeah? So, um, like I say, yeah, I think that... It, I'm not saying he didn't use it enough. <laughs> that's, not what that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying... <laughs> but what I am saying is... That would, they would probably have used it a hell of a lot more. We're talking about the worst of the worst here. They were possession. They were property. They weren't even people to these scumbag fuckers, you know. So, so it's the intent. You're trying to show how bad someone is. And, and you're the writer as well as the director. That's another thing, you know. I wouldn't say he gets a pass for any other reason than... He's a right. He's the writer himself, and he's trying to flesh out these characters with the kind of authenticity ways that they view people. Yeah, with authenticity. Yeah, like I say, you know, these these slave owners back then, they they might they may not have used the n word to the slave, but they may not have spoken to the slave at all. You know, it's it's just complicated, of course. But that's what he's trying to. This is a white man talking, but I don't think many black people wanted to watch Twelve Years a Slave. They want fucking Django, yeah. That's like in the UK, right? We've got these directors like Ken Loach. They make these kitchen stink dramas about the working class, yeah? British working class people don't want to watch their movies. They want to watch Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. They want to watch Snatch. They want to escape. They don't want it fucking rubbed in their face, yeah? Yeah. So I'm sure I would I would imagine, and I will have to imagine because I'm a fucking whitey white guy, that when black people are watching Django, they're waving their fists euphorically in victory, you know, feeling empowered. And then, you know, then you get the Oscar bait shit like 12 Years a Slave. They don't want to be watching that, I'm sure. But, you know, like I say, so I think he's the writer-director. He's fleshing out his characters and he's revealing just how that still needs to be in the discussion. Still needs to be out there. He's got my blessing, but, who the fuck, you know, I think, he, I think he's doing the right thing. I think his heart is in the right place. As me and Devon Taylor covered on the original episode he is using it in a context with which it needs to be used my only problem i've ever had with him was a little bit of the jimmy use of it in <laughs> pulp fiction at the time it was funny but i don't think it i think of all the ones he's used that's the one that doesn't stand the test of time however this and the hateful eight have such truth in them it's uncomfortable i think more for white people in my yeah. opinion i do think it's more uncomfortable Good. for white people Good. and, and it's, exactly that is the fucking point that's is exactly it should it, yeah. be uncomfortable as i think i said in the hateful eight episode too it should be uncomfortable you should be very uncomfortable hearing it now just imagine if it makes us white folk uncomfortable hearing the n-word used as much as it get used imagine being someone of darker skin and hearing that your whole entire fucking life every time every time that's a part of your daily life mm -hmm. i don't think yeah. there's a single and again i don't i don't know the race uh, way is over outside of America, so I don't I don't know the same kind of you know things that um, people of color have to go through outside of what they go through here in America. So I don't I don't know what it's like to be in England if the same if the word is used the same or what happens. So I don't want to speak on that. But if you live in America and you're black in America, there's not a day in your life, or I'm sorry, day, but there's not a person of that of colored skin who's not heard that word said to them, not by at someone them. of their same color. At the, yes, I'm sorry, at them. Oh. By someone who looks like us or close. Yeah. So yeah. if so, it makes you uncomfortable, it should. That's the point. Yeah. And it's also yeah. why we have in this country this sudden need to hide what really happened in slavery. We don't want to teach race theory because, God forbid, we give up our dirty laundry and show mm. people what we're really like. Instead of being like, you know what, us, 
who are now in the generation alive, we did not perpetuate this, but we will also now be the generation that helps stop this kind of shit. We could do that. We could do that instead, instead of being a bunch of fucking assholes and crybabies and go, well, I don't want to show this. What are you talking about? Fucking take responsibility. But I, I applaud Tarantino in that respect, but I won't go out and say, I, you know, I mean, I, again, like I said, like you said, I don't feel he overdoes it, but I'm also not a person who's ever had that said to them. And have to live with that. Exactly, so I will yeah. also take respect anyone who disagrees with me and says says it way too much. Especially mm. if they're of color. Like, okay. of course a white person. I have no problem with anybody. Like, wow, what a stance, Mr. White Man. You don't mind the N-word being said in the movie? What a bold stance for you, sir. So, yeah, no. See, but but not, I, I do feel he, Yeah, I do feel he uses it within the right context. But again, I will also be more than uh, available to stand and say, you know what? If another person of color does, feels differently, I will stand behind them and say, then then he shouldn't. Because, again, it's not my word, and I've never had it said at me. You know, yeah. like, I've never, I've, there's no word that anyone can say to a white person that offends us. I mean, we can pretend to be offended and grab our, oh, God, oh. but really, someone calls you, what's the worst fucking thing someone could call? What's, what, mm-hmm. a cracker? Like, what's the worst thing someone could say to us? And wh- where does it hurt? It doesn't. We don't, yeah. we don't have, we don't live in that. It's the one, if you want to talk about white privilege, the best thing about white privilege is there's no words out there that affect us yeah. at all. None. Uh-huh. And that's what white privilege truly is. Like people who don't understand, you have never been called anything by anybody. You can pretend it bothers you. Well, he called me a cracker. That doesn't fucking bother you. I've never been bothered by it in a second. You can uh-huh. call me all day long. It does not affect or hurt me because it's never been, I've never been held down from it. But quickly, before I forget, if we were talking about the novelization, we wouldn't be having this discussion. No, no, totally. And can you imagine if he did this movie and didn't use the word at all? The movie would lose lose all credibility. The movie would have been forgotten about in a week. And the reason they're still talking about it and how controversial it is because it's fucking true. I don't think Jamie Foxx and Samuel Jackson would have been a part of it. Because it makes white people uncomfortable. And it should. No, it's not because it makes... that's not because it makes black people feel uncomfortable. It's because it makes white people uncomfortable. Which is why Samuel Jackson said to Leonardo DiCaprio, it's just another Tuesday for us when Leo's having a tough time saying the word. Yeah. There's there's yeah. your answer right there. Like, yeah. there it is. Yeah. Is Samuel Jackson comes out and goes, it's just another Tuesday for us. Which yeah. in and of itself is fucking Fucked mind-boggling. Mind-fucking-boggling. Yeah. That That's the thing. Yeah. But... So, but I wanted to get us into it then, because now we can go into more happier times. But you can't talk about Django no, Chain no, without yeah, discussing no, this, because it's it's it is what it is. It's the I think to date, and it could have changed, but it's still the number one movie with the most use of it. Mm. But it's not like you know, if if but that was if there was 116 uses of this, and like once upon a time in Hollywood, we would be having a different conversation. Yep. Exactly, You'd be like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, there's mostly white people in that film. You'd be like, what is happening? You know? You'd be like, this is this is crazy. Is this like a clan movie? This is different. You know? Like I said, yeah, I no, would take the stance that this is just from from a, a, a cinematic perspective of looking at it. But again, if if we're wrong, then we're wrong, and then that's the conversation. Yeah. But I do believe white people get very asshole puckered up because of it, and it's mostly yeah. white folks having a problem with this because they don't like to look in the mirror. Hello, Stephen, my boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my ass. Who this nigga up on that nail? Oh, Stephen, you have nails for breakfast. What's the matter? Why are you so honored? You miss me? Huh? Oh, yes, sir. I, I miss you like a like a hog miss flop, like a like a, a baby. Miss Mammy Titty. <laughs> I miss you like I miss a rock in my shoe. <laughs> now, I asked you, who this nigga on that nag? It's Snowball. You want to know my name or the name of my horse? You ask me. 
Because who the hell you calling Snowball, Hoss boy? I'll snatch your black ass off that man down here in the mud so fast, make your head. Steven, 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 Steven. Let's keep it funny. Django here is a Freeman. This nigga here? That nigga there. Let me at least introduce the two of you. Django, this is another cheeky black bugger like yourself, Steven. Steven, this here is Django. You two ought to hate each other. Anyways, moving on to something more fun. Tarantino guest starring in his films. As we discussed on the Death Proof Anniversary special, Mr. Tarantino has had some mixed reviews when it comes to the cameos in his films. In this film, however, there is a yin and a yang for him. He brilliantly and hilariously cameos as a hooded KKK member who suggests that maybe this time they don't wear the bags and maybe next time they wear the bags. His sliding into his Tennessee roots and how he hated the rednecks that he talks about, if you go to the same Cinema Speculation tour, how he was raised part of his life by these redneck hicks from Tennessee and can't stand them. He slides into that for the hooded guy, which is brilliant. Once you know it's him and you hear his voice, you know it's him forever. And then his maybe worst cameo, Later in the film, as a part of the LaQuint Mining Company, which which is a little ego because his nickname was Little Quint, and so he named the mining company LaQuint, so whatever. <laughs> and his terrible, god-awful Australian accent. However, thankfully, thankfully in both, he doesn't say the N-word, and he just calls Jamie Foxx Blackie as the was go, which is, I was so nervous that he was going to try to say the N-word. And in an Australian accent that was just going to absolutely fall apart and the movie would just come to a halt at the very end. How do we feel about both of QT's performances in this film compared to the others he's done? And which of the roles do you feel is Tarantino's best that he is, and I'm not talking about when he was in From Dust to Dawn. His little, when he debuts in his movie, your favorite role. How do you like him in this? So we're, so we're only talking about his yeah, own no, movie. His no, own movie, yes. Because you've already, yeah. Nikki, Steve, which we know you love. <laughs> well, that's where I was headed. <laughs> See, Sean, he just knows me. We're so connected, man. He knew where I was going. There's a poster behind you, dude. <laughs> you fucking idiot. <laughs> he had to cut me off straight away. I was like, Steve, back up, Steve, back up. Um, okay, so when he played, playing the, the Australian guy is fucking terrible, right? <laughs> and he also he loses the accent at one point. And I, like I said, I only saw a couple of nights ago, so I, I was right there, and I'm like, ooh, you kind of dropped the accent there. <laughs> So when he plays the Australian, it's fucking terrible. But when he plays the hood guy, that's hilarious, yeah? And I love that scene because he's <laughs> oh, completely brilliant. making fun. You know, as a counter to the N-word thing, he's making these white guys look like complete fucking jackasses, yeah? <laughs> and it is a hilarious scene. That's probably his best role in one of his films is when he played the hooded dude. Yeah. For me, his best and worst are in the same film. His best and worst yeah. are in the same film. He is so good in that. Maybe this time we don't need bags. But next time, we're about to go full regalia. That, that is a hilarious... Full regalia. That is a funny... That seems funny. <laughs> he's so... It's funny because one yeah. accent is brilliant. You're like, God damn, he's hitting this southern draw brilliant. Like, and then he goes to the Australian. You're like, know. what the fuck is yeah, I mean, really, he could have chosen anyone could have been done that fucking part better than him. The Australian guy, I mean. Yes, no, I know. It's supposed to be like the Australian mining company. If you notice, Michael Parks is using his regular speaking voice. Because it's this Michael Parks. True. We want yeah, to hear him. And the Parks other guy speak, is the guy from Because he's so good at speaking. You want to hear Michael Parks speak. The guy from Wolf. Yeah, the guy from Wolf Creek. Like, he... He's got a full-on, I've met him, he's full-on Australian 100% of the time. He could have just done that in his regular voice and not ruined the scene. But I, maybe it's supposed to be, he did that to be funny. 
because I mean that maybe yeah because he does he does blow himself up right so of all of them he gets blown up with sticks of diamond so he has a little bit of fun with it but what, what do you think's his best and his worst of Mr. all his films? Brown. Mr. Brown is his best, in my opinion. Um, I like Mr. Okay. So That's I actually fair. I listed him out. Mr. Brown, then I loved him as Warren. Oh, all um, right. The bartender thing is more, yeah, right. yes, is more like yeah, what he, I, I think that's Warren. more what he is in real life. The way he just, everything yes. in the way he says it. Then the bag head. That's Quentin Tarantino if he never was a film director and just owned yeah. a bar. Right, like, like that's that's who he is. He's Warren. Well, and I think that he's actually like that off screen. The way, he, like, when he's doing the shots and stuff, like, you know, it's a commanding performance for him. <laughs> Tour de force. Then the baghead, then Jimmy, and then Frankie. Um, I actually think he did a better job as the voiceover in Hateful Eight than he did as the Australian in Django Unchained. But yes, ever since he said black dicks and white mouths, he I was like, he should voice kids' books at this if point. He just if he would have just kept it as an American accent, it would have been so much better. But the way that he says the <laughs> shut up right. black and it's Australian accent, I giggle every time because the accent's so bad and then it's like, what the fuck? Really? <laughs> so, Mr. Smith, besides QT, who is your favorite side character in this film? I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you while you were blowing yourself. Sometimes I get carried away. Don Johnson. I just love Don Johnson. Oh, he's great. Don Johnson, I think, it's fair to say, he's probably good in everything he's been in. Ever since I saw him in, I don't know if you've ever seen the film, A Boy and His Dog. It's like a 70s science fiction movie. He was young in that as well. And that's one. That's a weird movie. That's worth checking out. Um, but obviously, you know everything from my, like Miami Vice. I mean, he's great in um, Brawl and Cell Block '99. Yes, yes, he is. He's just one of those. He's just one of those actors. I think he's great in everything. And in um, and in Django, he's just this, <laughs> he's flamboyance and this sort of. <laughs> Come on in, get yourself something cool to drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you better you do the accent so. stuff. I can't. Uh, I'm not going to pull that off so well. But yeah, you know, for Jimmy. Me, <laughs> yeah. So for me, that's tough because there's so many. There's so many great characters in Django. Um, but yeah, that was just great to see Don Johnson again. Basically, it's just the act I've always loved, and you know, so it's just one of them moments where, and he pulls it off effort, effortlessly. Yes. you know. It's great to see him play a role that he wouldn't normally play. You know, like yeah. he, just like when you say this, uh, Brawl and Cellar 99, those are two roles that you don't see, you know, you wouldn't normally think yeah. of Don Johnson, Mr. Miami Vice, to play. And a lot of people and he probably kills wouldn't have had the balls to play. No, no as not they at all. Guys, To put themselves in so well. Um, so for me, yeah, 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 Big Daddy. The guy from Dukes of Hazard also. 2 playing the sheriff right before that. Like, you'd That's never right. see That's him. Right, like, yeah. I'm like, I haven't seen him no. in anything in like, 30 years. Where the hell did he dig him up from? And he's, and great. he's great in it. And he's great. Yeah. Because yeah, he's in the Dukes right, of Hazard. Right. And who liked the Dukes of Hazard? Motherfucking Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, he, he'll pull you in. We all did. Yes. We all yeah. did. Sean, is that yours? No, uh, Steven. Man, he, as soon as he walks out of that fuck, you see his face, you're like, oh shit, it's on. Because you knew he's in the movie, but you yes. not know. I didn't see any trailers. So they show that that shot of him looking out. It's just like, oh, oh, it's fucking on. And he comes out and he just goes into that huge monologue. <laughs> and it's not supposed to be funny, but it's, it's funnier than most comedies. It's hilarious. He steals every scene that he's in. And everything is quotable, whether it's racist or not. Everything he says. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of them that, like, I was going through this, like, and it's one of the very few movies that he did that he has these great actors come in and, like, it's wasted. Like, Walton Goggins has, like, three lines the whole movie. Like, and the, the only problem, I guess, with all the side characters, I hate that he used James Ramar in two different roles and he did he had no attempt at hiding it at all. 
it's Mr. Pooh and uh, the one of the. Yeah. However, they are so significantly far yeah. behind each other. Well, I, I get it because he's in the opening scene, and then like you know, if you don't remember him, because you know a lot of shit happens. All of a sudden, you I mean, you meet him in the Mandingo fight, which is like, whew, you know, like I know. So, some people may even miss that he's well, in it twice. That's your casual moviegoer where I'm like, this is a f- fucking yeah. guy from the Warriors is in this twice. What the hell's he doing? You know, so like, yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with being in there twice, but there kind of is when you don't make any attempt. I think to... that my problem with with that man though is that I watched Dexter and loved Dexter, and they they kept him around for like four seasons longer than they needed to. I'm like, get him the fuck out of here! I'm sick of this guy's ghost right, keep coming right. back, and then all of a sudden he starts showing up in all the Tarantino movies. I'm like, oh, please get him the fuck out of here. So maybe it's my problem with the actor. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I see Stephen as a lead, almost a lead, yeah. though. That, that's why I didn't think of. So I didn't think of that character because I was thinking more along the lines of a sort of a bit part, really. Based. My other favorite was the Big Daddy character, which we visited that plantation, and I've I've got pictures of myself on the stairs, and the little door he walks out, and I could almost get in character when he when you walk out of it because it's just all I was missing was the music and the Boss Hog suit. That's it. And I would have yeah. been in character for it. And I got pictures where I'm leaning over and like, you want to get you something cool to drink, you know? So, <laughs> hey, yeah. You that Pega with Jimmy? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe while we discuss business, you could provide one of your loveliest black creatures to escort Django here around your magnificent grounds. Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, Bettina. Yes, sir, big day. Uh, what's your Jimmy's name again? Django. Django. Bettina Sugar. Could you take Django there and take him around the grounds here and show him all the pretty stuff? As you please, be there. Mr. Bennett, I must remind you, Django is a free man. He cannot be treated like a slave. uh, Within the bounds of good taste, he must be treated as an extension of myself. Understood, Schultz. Bettina Sugar? Yes, sir. Django isn't a slave. Django is a free man, you understand? You can't treat him like any of the other niggas around here because he ain't like any of the other niggas around here. You got it? You want I should treat him like white folks? No. That's not what I said. Then I don't know what you want, Big Daddy. Yes, I can see that. Uh, what's the name of that Pecklewood boy from town that works with the glass? Uh, uh, his mama work over at the lumber yard. Oh, you mean Jerry? That's the boy named Jerry. You know Jerry, don't you, sugar? Yes, and be dead. Well, that's it then. You just treat him like you would Jerry. I think one of the most underrated and uh, underappreciated tropes of Tarantino film is his use of dark humor. Like, the Coen brothers are known for that, right? Like, it's pretty much the center of most of their films, except for, obviously, when they adapted No Country for Old Men. There's not a lot of dark humor in No Country for Old Men. That's a pretty straightforward crime story. There's, you know, there's not a whole lot of laughs going on in that movie. However, Tarantino has a great way to place and time his dark humor. From Vincent shooting Marvin in the face to Lewis shooting Melanie in the parking lot, the door gag and the hate plate that you and I covered. But I think the fucking creme de la creme is his KKK pre-raid scene in this fucking film, it's a stroke of fucking genius, and maybe one of the funniest moments in the entire Tarantino-verse. It's a toss-up sometimes, but it may be. When you saw this for the first time, Mr. Wheeler, and now every time since, what was your impression of that scene, and what did you glean from it with each viewing since? It's, I think it's funnier than most comedies. Um, again, it's, it reminds me of Blazing Saddles from 74, the whole point of that movie when Richard Pryor did the punch up on it was to make white racist people look stupid. 
and he managed to do it in under five minutes and it's quotable like from beginning to end the whole fucking hands out when the guy like no nobody brought any extra bags like the whole fucking thing which i did i pulled <laughs> that on my wife at the walmart self-checkout when she asked if i had any more bags i got pulled the whole fucking thing no nobody and everyone's like what the fuck um nobody bought any extra <laughs> bags what <laughs> that is under that mask like, I just if get she could have said to you though don't ask me or mom for nothing <laughs> <laughs> all night um yeah i love that movie though i can't see you can't see that's a fucking raid like i, I it just oh, the it makes, see, that's a fucking raid <laughs> it makes no sense because if you can't see how the fuck you're gonna do a raid but he's just getting that jacked up and then the absolute waste of jonah hill is just like it'd be nice to see like you got this a-list actor there and he's got like two lines and it's he brings down the whole house with it. So I think the movie, that part of the movie is one of the, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Um, And one of, out of all his movies, that's one of my favorite scenes because it's so goddamn funny. And he's making fun of racist white people again. And I guarantee that people are watching that, not catching on to what he's trying to say. They're just looking at what's there and they're not seeing what you, what the three of us saw when we saw it, where it's like <laughs> fucking hilarious. Yes. So, Mr. Smith. Well, I like the kind of um, I, I can't remember the order exactly right, but, but but when they come over the hill on the horses with the hoods on and you got that music playing and that's fucking shit your pants moment. Beautiful. Yeah. What kind of music? What music is that? Is it the? It's like a charge of something. It's, like, it's almost like the charge yeah, of light. Yeah, there's like a it's, yeah. It's a charge. And you know, and that's just fucking. They're all got their um. Torches, yeah. Torches are on fire, and that's fucking. And then it cuts to them having the bickering, <laughs> and like Sean said, you know, you know, you, yeah, you think they're scary, but they're just a bunch of fucking idiots, really, you know. And the Jonah Hill thing is puzzles me. To be fair, again, you know, I say yes. I'm just being honest with it being on the lower end of my favourites. That, that when I start talking about little things that irk me, whatever. No, I'm not sure about him. To be honest with you. So I'm a little bit like, why, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. It's just a little bit like, why is he there? You know, admittedly a funny line, though. But that just sort of was a bit puzzling to me. And I, I actually forget as well that he's in it. Because there's such a small moment in a small scene itself. I always, I'm always like reminded, oh, shit, yeah, that's Joan Hill's in it. <laughs> I'm not sure about him, that's all. But I'm not sure about him as an actor, to be fair. Although I loved him in Moneyball, so fucking I don't know. What Watch am I Wolf, talking Wolf about? Of Wall Street, dude. Wolf of Wall Street. Well, oh, don't yeah. even fucking get me started uh, on that. Oh, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. You hate yeah. that, too? Hey, look, okay, oh. I'm, a very, I'm a very, you know... Cantankerous oh, oh, old son of a bitch. Oh, just a cynical pass. He's 50. I'm 50. He's 50. He's going to be 50. He's 51 the end of February. These cute boys looks. We'll be going to his funeral next year. What are you talking about? I'm telling you, these cute boys looks can fool you, but I'm, you know, I'm 50 years old. But, yeah, but that is... Oh, it's Petro's Petro's is still sperm at this point. Compared to Steve. But his immune system's fucked, so, you know. Well, you're um, so fucking old if I cough, I'm going to put it on mute so you don't get COVID or something. Oh, I mean, Jesus Christ. Christ. He doesn't you believe in COVID. That's how old he is. You can't. <laughs> Trump supporter. Yeah, you, can't, uh, you can't kill what's already dead. That's what I'll say. But, um, um, but no, that's just, a, yeah, it's just a great, that's just a great little scene. And, yeah, like you say, it, I like how it kind of juxtaposes the kind of, like, uh, the fear of the clan with the, look at these fucking 
bozos. So yeah, great, great thing. I think it also like whether he knew he was doing it or not. I think it's like pointing out like yes, these guys wear hoods and they're supposed to be all scared. But at the end of the day, bunch of fucking idiots under hoods. Just because yeah. they got hoods and torches doesn't mean they're worth the shit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I think it was also you know maybe maybe a little little social comment there like. You know what? Yeah, big deal. You're wearing a fucking mask. Fuck well, yeah, with your you mask, know, the, you idiot. The hoods, the fire, the... Yeah, it's know, meant the, to intimidate, yeah, but when the, you really yeah, realize well, yeah, what they're, they're like, really like, you're like, you know, they're not that intimidating anymore. Yeah, it's like that scene in, uh, in American History X when the, the he's in the prison, the guy puts the hood on and pulls it back, and he's all cross-eyed, and, you know, that scene, that's what it reminded me of, where it's just like, this is, it's not supposed to be funny, but it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Mr. Wheeler, your favorite line of dialogue or monologue in this film? Um, I love the phrenology, the table scene, the whole thing. He went to like a different fucking place in acting in that. And it's still like, I can't believe he didn't get nominated for anything. Uh, Steven's introduction is another one, but when he comes out of the house, the whole monologue and then the KKK scene is just, it's fucking great. Which one's your favorite though? The phrenology scene, the way that the, when he cuts his hand with the glass, um, yeah. just down to the little things he says, like the word, the way he says the word skull. When mm-hmm. he's doing all thing, if I open your skull, the way he says it and everything, and then like, how did the fuck did he not win an award for this movie? Other than that, he was saying the N word through the whole movie. If he didn't do that, it, like, would he? Have... It's because because the, the Academy Award's stupid. So they gave the award to Christoph Waltz, who was the star of the film. I know Jamie Fox is the star, but in honesty, the most of the movie is Christoph Waltz leading it until we get to the second half. So he should have at least been up for actor, not supporting actor. Jamie Fox doesn't even get fucking nominated. That's a travesty. DiCaprio gets nominated as supporting, and he should have won for supporting because he was a supporting actor. And in my opinion, he still was better than Christoph Waltz, and I love Christoph Waltz. But this is his best role, in my opinion. Better than him playing Jake Hill and Rick Dalton, which I love him in Once Upon a Time. But nothing is as spectacular as him playing Calvin Candy. Where he went to to play Calvin Candy, what the levels. This is Jack from fucking the Titanic. This is a heartthrob of America saying the N-word and being the most apprehensible character Tarantino has ever created. He's worse than fucking, what's his name there, Hans Landa. Hans Landa. Hans Landa's more meticulous, but no one as just as pure evil and just shitty pure evil as fucking Calvin Candy. And he's charming as fuck, where you don't yes. want to hate him. That's, yes. the, that's the part that, but yes. I think that it's almost like when they gave Peter Jackson the Academy Award for Return of the King. Yeah. They gave it to him for the whole body of work. I almost feel like they gave it to Walls just to, you know, guys shut up and go off someplace. Here's your fucking award. Shut up. We're not giving it to the guy that said the N-word for two hours. Get, get out of here. That's exactly how I feel about them not giving him. And then he wins for The Revenant, which he fucking spoke like three things and got beat up by a bear and crawled through the woods for fucking, and I guarantee you that was a uh, harder shoot. Right. But <laughs> I, don't know, I have stuff coming up on this, like in your questions you sent us later that I deep dived a little bit more into it and i don't want to go into that now but all right yeah like he should have won an award for this the 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 whole lot of lies around this table like i fucking like i can't even be around my family with you know have sitting down and have dinner without yelling <laughs> that at them like a whole lot of lies you know and the the tortoise shell tabletop the way that he yeah. just dissects that you know like there's and like i said the way you next time you watch it listen to the way he says skull if i was a cut open your skull the way he says it yeah. like it's just Holy shit. And his inflections. He doesn't do the Pacino where you just suddenly go crazy out of left field. He rises when he needs to rise and brings it back down. He just knows the perfect way to keep it menacing without it becoming a fucking caricature. Well, and just like his character, they just had guns on these motherfuckers and are like took all this money from them or getting ready to shoot them and cut their heaven white cake. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like there's no guns, you know, like the one gun is white out. Cake. That, yeah, you, gotta, you gotta pronounce it properly, Sean. White cake. 
really accentuate with, the with, with, what kind of white drama can be coming from <laughs> dessert? You know, like the way the the whole thing. You know, like I, I love his character in this movie. I don't care how fucking evil he's supposed to be. Mr. Smith, I know we kind of sidetracked a bit there. Your favorite line of dialogue or monologue from Django Unchained? Okay. Well, the phrenology bit is, uh, the, I mean, doesn't get much better, but there's a bit I love that always cracks me up. Walton Goggins, when Django has shot him in the balls and he's lying on the floor and he yells, the Django, you black son of a bitch! <laughs> I just love that bit when he calls him the Django. That just really fucking cracks me up. The Django, <laughs> and then uh, and then Django always, shoots him. Yeah, the D silent bang. But that just makes me laugh that he calls him the Django to show how fucking stupid he is as well. And, <laughs> and I also like um, when King Schultz is explaining to Django when they're having the beer together. There's a lot going on in that scene. I love that scene. And, and he's explaining what a bounty hunter does and all that and what they're going to do. And Django is just sat there transfixed on what he's saying and he's taking it all in. And I love that as well. But there's, a, you know, there's so much to love. But after a long think, it was the Django bit with Walton Goggins. <laughs> Billy Crash, is that his name? Billy Crash? Billy Crash, yeah. Billy Crash. Django! I just love that bit. Yeah. I almost forgot about dark humor. One of my favorites I forgot is when Django pulls the one guy down with the horse, like he pulls the horse. my goddamn collar. I saw him. DiCaprio, too, like, it's okay. I saw the whole thing. It's exactly. response I saw it all. Get back on your horse. Exactly. Quit. What does he say? Quit Quit harassing my guest or something. It's fucking hilarious. The thing is, though, how strong is Jamie Foxx to pull down a man and the fucking horse? That's pretty fucking strong. If you're about to fight somebody and they pull someone down off a horse with the horse, you go, I don't really want to fuck with this dude. He just pulled two people down. An animal that weighs about a thousand pounds and another human being. I just like, he broke my goddamn collarbone. <laughs> I saw the whole thing. No offense taken. Oh, I saw it all. Let's not forget why we're here. We gotta kill a nigga over that hill there. And we gotta make a lesson out of him. Okay, I'm confused. Are the bags on or off? I think we all think the bag was a nice idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not pointing any fingers, they could have been done better. So how about no bags this time, but next time we do the bags right, and then we go full regalia. Wait a minute. I didn't say no bags. But nobody can see. So? So it'd be nice to see. God damn it! This is a raid! I can't see, you can't see. So what? All that matters is can the fucking horse see? That's a raid! Great Tarantino trope is his ability to blend genres, which I think I've talked about before, but it really starts with Kill Bill. Since since then, he's pretty much been blending genres the last, God, most of his now, basically two-thirds of his fucking catalog is now basically genre blending. I almost said Django, you son of a bitch, now you've got me in my mind. I almost said Django. Django! While Django is the first true spaghetti western with him, it is one with a southern twist. This is also a superhero 
origin stories I talked about on the actual main podcast. This is the story of the rise of the first black superhero in Django Freeman. It was Sway, the DJ from Chicago, who was on MTV back in the 2000s who made this claim. He said, while interviewing QT, about this film that he feels that this is the first black superhero movie and it's hard to argue against this claim. We watch Django rise from enslaved servant to breaker of chains. He goes through different versions of his costume. He realizes his superpower as the fastest gun in the South and eventually topples the greatest foe, white slavers. How do you two slag John sons of bitches see this film? And do you believe Sway's claim about this being the first black superhero film? Two white gentlemen. No. No. What is he saying? Is he saying that... He's saying that Django is the first black superhero in the for the black community to look at. Now, some say it's Shaft. However, Sway believes that because you actually get to see the rise of Django from being a slave all the way to toppling the entire, basically, system. He goes from someone who won't even speak at the beginning of the movie, too afraid to answer if he's from the Crucian Plantation, to basically blowing up an entire fucking, <laughs> fucking building. That's a giant leap. Not even Shaft goes that far. So... How do you feel as two white gentlemen in their middle ages? I think that Steve's Hall of Fame of Blade, Blade is your first, you know, true black superhero that I ever saw in cinema. I well, saw so that before cool. I saw before I saw Shaft. But number one, Django's better than all of the superhero films that are coming out. I can't stand them anymore. Like it's it's I agree with Martin Scorsese. So do I. So how about this? I think he doesn't mean as in superhero. I think more as this as a hero for the black community. How's that? My superhero for the black community. Is, I, I, I agree with that. For that. Yeah, my Blade, question is when he says Django is the first black superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Now, Chef okay. wasn't made as Chef wasn't made no, as like a superhero. Well, movie. no, no. But what I mean is, is he saying that because Django was set in like the mid 1800s that he's the first because he's not a fucking blade i think i think if you look at like batman batman has no superpowers He's just a fucking rich guy who can't get over his parents he's being killed. He's a superhero. No, he's, he's not. Got... He's, got... No, he's not. No, he, he wears no, a he's costume not. and no, he beats he's up on people. I don't, I don't so think he's he like is. So he's like police. No, 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 no. I, don't, I don't think he is. That's not my point. But so but that's when how Batman sold. starts, Batman's parents are killed. No, I know. No, no, he goes no, on no, revenge no, no, no. You're, 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 to get at villains. So Django, similar. Django starts off as a slave, and we watch Django's transformation from a nobody to enslaved to now... The person who, as I think uh, myself and uh, Devon talked about, he takes over the film. So if we remember, Christoph Waltz starts off as our hero, but as soon as we get to Candy, he fucking barely takes. He barely takes over the movie. He just gets in there at the end, doesn't he, Django? And that's one of my major fucking issues with the whole movie. And you know it as well. Don't shake your I head. I think you're out of your Mrs. fucking Crack. mind. The moment, well, I know you do. The of moment he you becomes do. the black slaver, he takes over the film. The interactions he has with Leo's character and the interaction he has with Steven, he puts Christoph Waltz on the back burner from that moment on. Before then, it's Christoph Waltz's film. Hands down. The if minute he, he becomes the, the black slaver, we go to Mandingo, the Mandingo yeah. fight. It okay, becomes Jane. I just won't say anything though. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to get a fucking chance here. Yeah. I agree with I agree with Scott where like I see where like you're saying where he like takes over film, but as far as it being like a superhero, I, I see it as like a positive black role model. You know, I don't know about superhero. I think that's kind of a strong word that gets thrown around way too much nowadays, and I'm getting sick of it. Like everything's a fucking superhero. It certainly but, is. Yeah, I don't fucking you. I can make an argument that uh, that Leonardo DiCaprio is the superhero because of all the quaaludes he takes in fucking Wolf of Wall Street at this point. <laughs> You know, like you're, I'm not I, you're just trying it. to push Steve's buttons right now. You're intensely going <laughs> no, after Steve's no, buttons. No, what I, no, what I was trying to say earlier was 
Does he mean that Django is the first black superhero because of when the film is set? Or when the film came out? Sorry, or when the film came out? I I think he's just saying that he is... That as far as movies go, you can look at Django as being the first black superhero because there's not many black superhero movies, anyways, or characters who are. But there are black superhero movies. Yes, but Blade, Blade, but, but Blade Venom. is about a black man who's Venom a superhero who kills, who kills vampires. To black people, do you think killing We're vampires makes you very right. superheroic? We're talking about superheroes. Or a black slave. Who obliterates all of the white supremacists in Mississippi? Well, which, a, what do you think? That, the, what do you think the black massive, community is going to hold as a, a superhero more? Well, maybe that's a vigilante, though, isn't it? So is Batman. <laughs> so yes, fucking Batman. Yes, I'm not saying yes. Batman's a superhero. I'm saying he's, he's not a superhero. Um, check us out on the, check us out on the cheeky bastards for more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not even that's Batman's got nothing to do with it. We're talking about black. Superheroes. Yes, you're taking it as someone who puts on a costume as being a superhero. I think Sway is saying as someone who actually can if be looked Sway to as a hero. Sway doesn't know what he's fucking talking about, does he? He's a fucking... He plays rap records on the radio. He's not fucking Pauline Kyle, is he? He's a fucking idiot. Okay? Let's get that out of the way. Now we can talk about films, which he hasn't got a fucking clue about. I'm just saying... When he said Django is Django the black the first black superhero movie, does he mean? I don't think he means by time frame. I right. don't think he's well, then saying he's it because it's the eighteen hundreds. He? He's just right. completely wrong then. Because if he that was his fucking olive branch I was extending. If he would have meant no in eighteen sixty seven or whatever, I'd have been like, okay, maybe you got a point. But if you think that's the first movie with a black superhero, you're just fucking wrong, aren't you? I think he's your saying opinion, for, the, for the black community, it's their first real on, superhero. Your opinion is completely based on inaccuracy, so you're fucking wrong, aren't you? I would, love, I would love to reach out this way and have him and you on. I would love. He is. He's a big back. fan of the fucking show. So. That's right. He's a big, big, fan, <laughs> big fan of the cheeky bastards. No, yeah, is... <laughs> big, big time listener. <laughs> One of the first. Damon Harrison Ford. Scorsese. Don't forget Martin. Russell Crowe, Martin are awesome. <laughs> They're having uh, some yucks. Those of you who want to check in on the Cheeky Bastards, you don't know uh-huh. nothing don't but know. famous I'm, people. I'm fucking sweating bullets here, I'm telling you. But listen, <laughs> no, he's just wrong, isn't he? Just by pure fucking film history, so he's wrong. Mr. Will, your, your belief. He's not. It's not the first black superhero movie, but I can see where they would pull that, okay? that's We spent enough time on this. Like, it, it, there's Blade. I, I made the joke about Venom because Venom's black, but, you know, you know, it's a white guy underneath, so it's got the Darth Vader shit from fucking chasing Amy going on. Like, I was gonna say, yeah, you're definitely so, leaning into some Kevin Smith right now. Yeah, deep yeah. down, we all want to be white. You know, that's <laughs> not what they're saying with Venom. Everybody, but Venom was black, so so we. This podcast. So, I mean, so if, you're gonna, if you're gonna close out your first year of a season and maybe just take it right into the fucking ground, this is how you do it, folks. Hey, oh, I'm fucking crying. I'm here. I'm here all week, guys. Mr. Try Smith, the, try the veil, Mr. Smith. <laughs> uh, what yes, was your Scott. favorite scene from this film? I know my favorite scene from this part of the episode is <laughs> my favorite scene. Let me think. Well, I love the intro to the film. You know, the introduction of King Schultz and Django, and how swiftly King Schultz takes care of the, the um, yeah, the, the brothers. Two brothers. The, yeah, the brothers. Yeah, because yeah. he shoots the horse in the face, doesn't he? Am I right? Yeah, so he only because yeah. you know he keeps true to his, his code. He only shoots the one brother because he, he pulls, pulls his weapon on. Pulls his weapon he on just him. shoots yeah. the horse. Does he actually shoot the guy? Well, what I like is because I like the way that um, you see Django when he d- takes his I don't know what it is his blanket off. Yep, blanket it's off. Cheap. Yeah. Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh shit! Yeah, I never thought of that. Uh, yeah, that's what okay. they were saying. Is the whole scene where he takes it, he shoots it off, and you get to see like he's this flawed character. Well, no, that would be into... that would make more sense narratively as a superhero if he would have put his cape on. You know, we could go around in circles on that. But when he takes <laughs> his, when he when he takes the the blanket thing off, he's I mean, you know, he's already ripped, isn't he? Well, yeah, so I go, mean, yeah, he's he, fucking. If you're working in the fields and break a well, rock, no, like, no, you no, should no, be no, fucking no, ripped. I, 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 Are you talking about like his back being cut up? No, 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 no. Listen, I'm, I'm getting to that. If you just let me sign my piece, please, Thank please you, do. As you asked, my... no. Django is the most ripped of the bunch, but he's also the most whipped of the bunch, is what I'm saying. So that's all there on the, the oppression is all there on the on the screen. He's most whipped because he's the most unruly. Do you know what I mean? And he's the toughest. So they've got to fucking put him in Try his to place. Keep in line. Yeah, you have to. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got that, and then you've just got the. The exchange that King Sharks has with the two brothers, like he shoots the horse. Well, he shoots what, like you say, he shoots the guy, pulls on him first, and then he shoots the horse in the face, and he's just lying there. So for me, just that introduction, because King Sharks is extremely eloquent, like straight away, he's coming out with the, the he amazing pay, Tarantino. He even pays him for the horse that he yeah, shot. I love yeah, that. and the amazing <laughs> Tarantino dialogue just comes flowing out, doesn't it? You know, and like Django, bless him, doesn't know what the fuck is going on. What I love about, what I do like about this film is, you know, it does follow a lot of traditional Western tropes as well. Okay, it's got a lot of rhythm and blues and hip hop in it, but that's not really a black exploitation movie either. So it's a very hybrid situation where you've got like, that's almost like a traditional Western that kind of, like you say in the second part, it becomes like a Southern Gothic almost. So you've got all this stuff going. So what I'm thinking is, you know, yeah, okay, the first thing you think of when you think of Django, obviously, spaghetti Western. You've got rhythm and blues music playing. In a Western, you're going to immediately just think black exploitation, but that's neither of those things really. As much as it is a a genuine sort of Western, I mean, it looks to me a lot like um, like High Plains Drifter. The look of the film, I mean, like the colours and the. But yeah, so for me, you know, that opening sequence just completely engrosses you and sets you up for what's to come. So for me, my favourite scene is here's when basically King Shots rescues Django at the beginning, Mr. Wheeler. I think my favorite, and I'm kind of biased because, like I said, we visited the stuff. Like, I part the, the Big Daddy stuff is kind of special now for, I think, everyone in this house. That I mean, I parked my car right where, you know, uh, Big John gets killed. Like, when I got out, I was like, <gasps> where she was wh- getting whipped for breaking eggs. And, like, I just, I was like, and then this old woman's like, you guys need to come over here for the tour and, <laughs> like, kind of ruin my whole, you know, fucking plantation tour and everything. But, like, you know, the whole thing out there and the the girl that is playing the slave, the, what you want, the way that, you know, like, that whole scene from the minute they come riding up, you know, the whole interaction, then all, all the way that all three of them are shot and the, the beautiful way that the cotton is even you know, like filmed yeah. with the blood spraying on it. it. It reminds me of that scene in Sin City where her she doesn't blink and she cuts the head off and just the blood and she doesn't blink through the whole thing. It reminded me of that. Like there's such a beautiful scene and everything and, you know, filled with violence and humor and racism and everything that's Tarantino that we love all in about a 10 minute sequence. So yeah, that's probably yeah. my favorite one. And I, I'm biased. Like if you ever get a chance to go, I think it was like $15 to visit it. And they filmed most of the movie there. Or like I guess Candyland was even in the back and like the Oak Alley thing, which they, they just put in Red Dead um, Redemption. Red Dead Redemption 2 had the Oak Alley thing into it. And they they copied from that and everything. So it's a really cool location. And like that has really made that my favorite part of the movie, I think. Fair call. Fair call for both of you. Well done. We got through that without too much. 
Not too much. All right. Yeah, I've, uh, <laughs> calm down. Good. Calm down you want to have us on for the thriller Good episode. Lord. <laughs> well, well this, I'm pretty good. sure this is the last episode we'll, that people listen to. So this this is nah, my fa- nah. this is my farewell episode. <laughs> oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> nah, uh, it's, it's mild compared to the film we're discussing. Everybody, calm down. I'm simply a customer trying to conduct a transaction. I don't care. No sale. Now off with you. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Of course they're for sale. Move it. My good man, did you simply get carried away with your dramatic gesture, or are you pointing your weapon at me with lethal intention? Last chance, fancy pants. Oh, very well. to put a bullet in your beast, but I didn't want you to do anything rash before you had a moment to come to your senses. You goddamn son of a bitch! You shot Roscoe! Well, and you killed Ace! Uh, I only shot your brother once he threatened to shoot me. And I do believe I have five witnesses who can attest to that fact. Damn legs busted! No doubt. Now, uh, if you could keep your caterwauling down to a minimum, I'd like to finish my line of inquiry with young Django. We've got a lot of cartoon violence when we get to Candyland. And there's some cartoon violence in the beginning. But I truly believe the most harsh, realistic, and brutal violence is also in this film. And it starts when we make our way to the Mandingo fight scene and then eventually to Candyland. The Mandingo fight scene, D'Artagnan's death... And then some of the stuff that happens to Django, like when we pull what Carrie Washington out of the box, some of the stuff at the table. There's some real tough scenes of violence in this. Now, obviously, we get two very fun things, you know, the explosion of the KKK. We all we all enjoy that. And we all enjoy when he makes his return back and get away from those white people. And he shoots Miss Lord through the fucking open door. One of my favorite moments when he blows that bitch away. I give that actress so much credit because the harness yank that she probably didn't know was coming. If you watch it again, you can do it frame by frame. That bitch goes up off her feet and is just yanked. I don't know who's yanking her through the doorway on the harness. But she is fucking yanked. I would love to just see a behind the scenes of being on the other side of that wall to watch the person pull her and just see her get fucking whipped through that fucking opening. Now, my question for you both. What do you think is the more of the brutal scenes? Now, they were both shot with more footage and Tarantino realized that if he overused the footage that he would might turn his audience off for the rest of the film. The Mandingo fight scene or D'Artagnan's death? Mr. Wheeler, we're back to you. Which is the more brutal of the film scenes for you to watch? They both end horribly. I think the Mandingo fight scene. We were just watching it the other night, and I noticed my wife like crocheting and had to put her face. She's like, I had problems watching this scene, and we just watched Terrifier too, and she didn't blink through the whole thing. Which is like people were thrown out, and like I'm like, what the fuck? How would you watch that? And then I don't know. I just got a problem with it. I think it's the escalation of the whole scene. Like they walk in, and it's so nonchalant, and you got guys watching it like it's a sport. Then you get the arm break that you hear every bone, and then the eyes, the sound effects. Whoever did the sound on this Mm -hmm. scene alone? It's just it's like holy shit. And then you get the hammer at the end that 
makes you know Leatherface look like a pussy <laughs> way that he does it, and it's like I, I honestly th- like that that scene. There's some real like, and I remember it was covered in Fangoria even. I mean, because this isn't a horror film, but they covered this scene and then the dog, the dog scene as well in Fangoria. That's the first shit I really seen from the movie. If I remember right, was reading an article about it. I'm like, what the fuck are we in for now? You know, especially after after Death Proof with the you know getting the face pulled off yeah. the tire and everything. I mean, that was a tough scene to watch. This. Uh, it's the Mandingo fight scene. Like I, I covered all my points. <laughs> like it, it's difficult to watch the dog scene. I think a lot of it is just the sound as well. Where like you know, you ever hear that shit? You're running, Mr. Smith. Mandingo fight scene or D'Artagnan's unfortunate death at the hands of the bitches, as they call them. Mm, that's difficult. Both horrific, but for me, it's the D'Artagnan being ripped apart by the dogs, and I think it's because you're less than a dog. Is what yeah. I took away from it. I mean, and the look on D'Artagnan's face. He's terrified, you know. He's terrified. He's surrounded by... He's in hell. He's in, he's in actual hell. hell. He's, su- mm-hmm. he's surrounded by white people, and the only two people there who could do anything to help him can't help him. Mm-hmm. And Or tease that they're going to help him, and then don't. Well, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. They're both awful. As And that is the... In- you know, that is... The, the intent. Achieve the desired effect. Like, the fight, the reason I say what I say is because the fight is man against man. But you could argue that as well. They're not, they're not men, are they? They don't see him as men. So that's why it's so equally horrific. They're not, they're just They're truly they're just two toys. kindred spirits that are forced to fight each other for survival. Yeah. Instead of fighting together, they have to fight each other for survival. We've got to murder yeah. someone. We've got to murder one of your own in order to stay alive in this hell longer. Which is worse. Talk about how yeah. dehumanizing that is. Like I say, I haven't watched it a few nights ago. Like I say, you're not even human. You're less than a dog, is what they're saying. And in both sequences that we're talking about, what's equally heartbreaking is King Schultz. He's mortified, isn't he? Because yeah. he's not. He's from a foreign land. He's he's really now. He's not as used to Americans. Yeah, he's not. He's now seeing it for what it truly is. He's heard the stories. I mean, yeah, fair enough. He goes around blowing people's heads off, but they're all these. These are the people that are doing this shit. In one way or another, he's in on this, and he's playing along with the charade as long as he can. And you can just see how horrified he is, and the effect that's having on him. You know, it's not, you know, destroying his soul as it unfolds, really. So yeah, they're both equally horrifying. But to me, D'Artagnan is just that little step crueler because to me, it's, at the at the time, it just was like you're less than a dog to us, and we're all going to stand round drooling as you're torn apart. It's fucking heartbreaking. So, yeah, tough one. I think what adds to that, what you're saying, too, is that it's also a pissing contest that because yep. because Django has to play the black slaver the way he's playing it, he signs D'Artagnan's death the way it's going to be because of it. Yeah. And because Candy has been letting some shit slide, pulling a man off a horse, saying some shit, he now is going to show Django now that they're back on their property, this is my world. Welcome to my world. And now I'm going to take care of my property the way I want to take care of it. And D'Artagnan, oh, yeah. unfortunately, is killed brutally because of Django. We covered that in the pilot. Like, yeah. it's, that's true. what makes it yeah, hard. It's, it's, yeah. it's Django's fault. And I know that he has to do what he's got to do, but it's, it's a... And you can see it. Anyone who watches it again, watch Jamie Foxx's great reaction as he puts the glasses back on, realizing, you can see it in his face, he knows he just got that man killed viciously yes. by those dogs. No, but he has true. to keep moving forward because he knows who he has to. But he knows 
and it doesn't sit well with him, but he, he knows that it's, it's on him. Like the, that blood yeah. is on his hands. You know, yeah. who knows how he would have been killed anyways. He's probably going to die regardless. It's true. But like I say, it's just King Charles. It was just King Charles to me. It was just like he's he's out of his depth. Yes, but the, the bounty hunting game has got nothing compared yeah. to what he just yeah. landed. For the first into. time, for the first time, he's out of his depth, and it things it's dawning on him. Well, and Candy sees that too. Like he, yeah. you know, when he comes in, and oh, part of the yeah. introduction was, you know, it just looks like a little bit of fun. And <laughs> as soon as it gets to that point, he's like, oh, "Shit!" And you can see where. I think Candy kind of realizes maybe a little bit that he's dealing with Django more than he is with King Schultz. Yeah. Now to have some fun with it, what is your favorite scene of violence in this bloodbath of a film, Mr. Wheeler? I love the Miss Laura getting the Desperado homage where she <laughs> just pulled out of, like, it's it's right out of Desperado the, where he shoots the guy and you can do, the guy gets launched into the ceiling in slow motion, like, the only thing that's, that, that's missing is the slow motion. Um, I love the death of the Brittle Brothers, too, that, yeah. you know. That, that whole thing and then obviously the dynamite is just fucking great like i love the the like i didn't see it come. i was like oh shit so that was on my top three mr smith it's the gunfight with django and the, uh, so right, right after they've killed candy that whole of that gunfight i fucking always get such a buzz when django comes flying through the room on his back you know when he just flips backwards with the two and shoots the two guys shoots the guys in the doorway and it just becomes this, you know, it's like we're in Kill Bill territory again. Type oh, yeah, thing, absolutely. It's a house of blues all around. over again. Yep. Yeah, it's like blood everywhere. And it's just like, that's catharsis, isn't it? You know, yes. We'll get to it later. But, <laughs> yeah, it's just a couple of little nitpicks I've got in this whole part of the film. But that's for another time or next question, perhaps. But I love, I just love that shootout. You know, because he really goes to town. A squid city, isn't it? He just goes to town. <laughs> and there's, um, is it Dennis Christopher, the the, the other sort of flamboyantly blonde guy who's lying there and, and he's being used as a human shield, basically? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> His attorney, I think. And just, yeah, yeah. He just becomes like the yeah the human shield of Jack. Yeah, he keeps getting like shot. Fucking, there's big blood for his Yeah, <laughs> like he's fucking getting shot on the ankle and the knee and like the side, <laughs> and there's like blood flying everywhere. I always love this bit because with this, is, I'm still talking about that shootout. But what kicks it off is Django gets James Remar's gun from him and shoots him close range, and he has to wipe the blood off his face. I don't know if you've ever really paid attention to that or whether you always see it. He's just stood right, just looking each other in the eye, basically, like two feet away from each other. And um, Django just pulls James Remar's gun out of his holster, shoots him, and then has to wipe the blood across off his face. And then he turns and then it goes ape shit. But I just love that bit where James Remar gets shot and Django's like, bang. And then that goes crazy. And he just goes flying through that room backwards. And that just goes from there, just goes ballistic. Talk about violence, that's just a crazy violence thing. And you know, guys come rushing through the door, don't they? And Django's just fucking shooting. Them. It's it's like it's a, a John Woo Western. It's what it turns well, it's into. Kind of like the, it it you know? kind of reminds me of the bit in um, John Rambo where he's shooting the guys in the back of the truck and there's just fucking parts flying everywhere. That's just like that. So, yeah, that's my favorite violence scene. That's the most cathartic, I think. In the sweet by and Y'all gonna be together with Calvin in the by and by.
just a bit sooner than y'all was expecting. Black folks, I suggest you get away from all these white folks. Not you, Stephen. You right where you belong. Uh, Cora, before you go, will you tell Miss Laura goodbye? D do what now? I said tell Miss Laura goodbye. Bye, Miss Laura. Now, I did not put this down for you, but since we don't have another person and we can kind of fly through some of this, uh, we're going to add something you, you weren't prepared for. It's something that's bothered me, and we'll talk about this and see maybe if it bothers you because I know you have some uh, hang-ups on the film. But what bothers me, and it's a part of the film, it has to happen or else we don't have the story. I've always felt, of all that Tarantino's writing, and he won an Academy Award for this, my only flaw that he's had, and it's been the plan to go get Broomhilda. He is a German... Bounty hunter, or could be make himself to be a slaver for, for all that we care. I mean, he doesn't, you know, it's not like he has to, whatever. He can write however he wants. But it seems like they go through an awful lot of uh, a ruse just to buy a girl who he could have bought with a lot of money. You know, I mean, it could have been just as simple as, hey, I understand that you have a slave who speaks German. I'm a German man. I would like to buy her. How much are you looking for her? I mean, she's clearly a pain in the ass. The I mean, I don't think it would have been that big a deal to pay for it. Now, I understand that if we don't go the route that we're supposed to go, we don't get the film, and I enjoy the film. But if I'm also going to be a fair person and also talk where I find Tarantino's flaws, this for me is the biggest flaw in all of his movies is the plan to get Broomhilda. And I noticed that while reading cinema speculation, I don't know if you both read it or not, but there's a chapter where he's kind of ripping apart Paul Schrader a little bit for yes. these little things that are, there's errors in his film. Like, how do they get from point A to point B? Why did they go to point C? And I'm the whole time that I'm listening to it, I'm thinking about Scott's podcast where you brought it all up. And I'm like, you know, he did that in Django. Okay, yeah, he shoots candy. Steven goes crazy. And oh, then he stands and we'll talk about there. that in a second, too. And he fucking stands there. And he could have turned around. You know there's another shot in that gun that he could have fucking got the drop on the guy with the shotgun behind him, but he just stood there. Well, he turns around and says, I'm sorry. That's what he does. Instead of shooting somebody else, he goes, I'm sorry. And then he gets yeah, blown like, the fuck away by James Remar. And you know that he was thinking about this as he was walking. I'm going to shoot this fucker. Like, it's, this is done. I'm putting an end to all of this. Bang. And then he just stands there while it goes in slow motion. And, I mean, the fastest person reacting in the whole room is the oldest person. So I, I see your point. And, like, for cinema, yeah, and I, I guarantee a lot of people hadn't even noticed that. Now, like I said, I love the scene itself. Like, you know, I love the movie. And I, so it doesn't, doesn't end it for me. But if I'm going to sit there with critical eye yeah. and do a cinema speculation on it, it's and a flaw. It's a huge flaw in, in yeah. the story. You have to have that critical eye. You have to. I can, I'm not just going to be a... I'm just not here to lick the pole of Tarantino. Yeah, when I see a flaw, I'm going to say well, it. I'm I, just, I, you know... And this is my this is my problem with the film. Everything else, I'm fine with, but that's where my issues lie in this film. And I've, I've heard interviews with Tarantino where he said, we went off script towards the end, and I'm like, yeah, no fucking shit. You can tell. All right, you've got two <laughs> third acts. 
that's just mate, that's just fucking bad filmmaking. And right now, you could argue that you know when King Charles refuses to shake his hand, yeah, that's bullshit. Yes, this was the next thing I was yeah, bringing up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's bullshit. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go with it. We'll we'll walk, we'll walk right with it. That's bullshit. You you've done nothing but lie and deceive since you were there, and you can't shake someone's fucking hand. When you've won. Well, isn't that what Harvey Keitel says to um, Gecko and from Dust Till Dawn? Are you that much of an idiot that you can't tell when you've won? They have won. Well, it's the, the part of it is is let's you know let's just go. That's a character flaw for Schultz, right? Let's let's say that because the reason he does this is like you said is because he has watched horrors that he did not yeah. understand, and for whatever reason, we've all made this mistake, right? We've all done something where we're like, shit, we probably went too far, and he's like, I can't do it anymore. Like he had his breaking point, and this motherfucker wants him to shake his hand, and all he can think about is he wants to kill him, so he does. But there's my problem with that too is you brought this man who you freed. To help save his wife. You have just done that. And now you have left them to the fucking wolves. The only reason they walk out of these doors is because you're a white man and you have vouched for him. And because of the bullshit Southern hospitality bullshit that they fucking hang their hats on. Well, it's Southern hospitality to let a white man walk out with his black property. That's that's their, that's their ticket out. The minute you shoot candy, it's over. Those papers aren't going to be worth fucking shit. No one is going to recognize them below the Mason-Dixon line. And maybe some above the Mason-Dixon line as well. The only way he survives the both of them, if, you know, obviously Django then turns into fucking, you know, the, the greatest gun ever, which is, again, a very joyful scene to watch a bunch of rednecks get blown the fuck away. So I'm happy with it. But in the storytelling, or at least in the flaw of Schultz, you just fucking signed their death uh -huh. certificate. By doing this, way too much. turning around and saying, I'm sorry, like, uh, here's the thing, when Django goes back in and is nice and pats him on the back, I'd have punched him in the back of the fucking head, like, you motherfucker, the fuck you almost got us killed, I'm not even 100% out of here yet, I just avoided being hit in the back of the head and thrown out of whatever hole, I'm not going to say, with a LaQuentin mining company, now I've got to deal with these fucking assholes, still, now don't get me wrong, I love that whole part of this, the movie, it's awesome, like when he rises up and fucks everyone up, love it. Absolutely love it. But the flaw, obviously, with what I thought of the story, but also King Schultz, what the fuck, dude? Like, what a fucking asshole. Yeah, well, because this is what I was going to say, because what I said to my favorite like, action scene it is what comes after that. Now, you could argue that even if he would have shook Calvin Candy's hand, they might not have got out of there alive anyway. You could argue that. When he refuses to shake Calvin Candy's hand and then shoots him, it's important to remember that at that precise moment in time, Django is unarmed. Yes. The only reason Django just fucking happens to rise to the challenge is because someone stood right next to him as got a gun. <laughs> yes. King Charles wasn't thinking that when he shot Calvin Candy. No. So that whole thing is a bit weak. And in my opinion, I would probably have been a lot happier with it if that was the finale of the film, somehow. It would have involved some moving the yeah, things Yeah, he had to keep going for another one. Yeah, yeah, we could have, we could have just ended where he shoots his way out and ends yeah, it there. Yeah, but you would have needed to jig yeah. things around because you would need, you know, you would have needed his wife. She's in peril. Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? You know, that's just a crazy situation. But that, that that would have involved some moving the things around. But that should have, for me, I'm not Tarantino. I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not a <laughs> filmmaker. So I'm selfishly just saying that would have satisfied me more. Yeah, all right, you know, um, King Schultz could have still died and everything, but I think that part, that should have been the finale of the film, and I believe it was initially, but I haven't read the script, someone told me that. So, yeah, just that, that King Schultz is willing to let everyone die rather than shake someone's hand is just weak to me, and that's that's all I can really say. Sean, any, any feelings from you? Uh, I feel the same way he does. I actually agree with him on it, where 
like the first time I saw it, I didn't really, it was like, you know, you're like, oh shit. Okay. And then the second time, and then you start picking up on it. And then your podcast, like that's when you guys were talking about it. It's like, you guys brought a lot of shit to light on it, or I'm like, maybe just watching it as too much of a fanboy at times. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, the first time you see the movie, it's like a bang. And then all of a sudden, like, uh, like you mentioned, Steve, like he says, I'm sorry. And the next thing you know, Django is going fucking crazy. We get this great soundtrack and people are getting blown away. And you forget that this is kind of a bit of a hole in this structure that we've been talking about, but because you're just sucked into this like amazing moment, which we're all, I mean, it's an amazing set piece. I can't take that away from him. It's an yeah. amazing John Woo does a Western set piece. And you're like, holy fucking shit, this is awesome. But like you say, if you go back and watch enough times, you go, this doesn't sit right with me. There's a, there's there's some gems oh, here. Like there's a there's a there's a big flaw in our character, and there's this whole ruse doesn't seem like it needs to happen. Like we could have gone somewhere else with it. That's watch number eight. But like I said, when I was listening to the book, like it's the first thing I thought of was this this is the big plot hole that's in you know, out of all of these movies, he doesn't really write himself into corners very often, but that one there was, where I guess we're supposed to put faith in that King Schultz knew that Django's abilities were going to get him and her out of there in one piece. But then you've got the flip side of it that Scott and I covered on the Hateful Eight episode, where even though they're fucking out of there, they're not out of there. They've still got a ways to go, so what happened after that? Because the motherfucker didn't just ride to Mexico and help Zorro out, despite what the comic books say. (laughs) I mean, you know, Everything that Steven says after he gets kneecapped is 100% true. You're going to be the one on the posters. And, you know, that whole ending that everything Steven says, you you uppity son of a bitch. Like, (laughs) all of that, it's... You know, like that's, it's not going to be good no matter what. So even if they get out of there, they're not out of there. They've got quite a ways to go. And uh, he's a bad motherfucker, but yes. I don't think he's that bad. Of a mother- uh, well, as soon as, especially because they built up, before you get to Candyland, they're already building up the legend of Candyland during that, that dinner scene, that beer scene that Steve was talking about earlier. Yep. Where, you know, of course, everybody's heard of Candyland. It's like the worst fucking, you know, plantation on earth, pretty much. So, like I said, he builds a legend. So, as we talked about, he, it's probably a spook story for a lot of people. But again, to get through as a black man, even they have papers in the South, you know, without without a white man escorting them, unfortunately, at that time. And he's I, dressed as I, a I white man. I don't think anyone's going to recognize those papers. He's yeah. wearing Leo's outfit. There ain't no black man wearing that outfit. He'd have been well, further ahead to try to get out of there in his blue outfit. Don't get me wrong. He looks cool as shit, paper. but he's not very but subterfuge. I have <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Put money into the clan then. And I bet you I'd put my I put money on it. Quentin Tarantino could talk his way into explaining it to me, but that's not in the fucking movie. That's one of the things where like how much got cut out that may explain something we've never seen. That that could be something. And I would be willing to hear that, but as the way it's built and made right now, there's holes in the end of this film. He could sell he could sell you know, ice cubes to the Eskimos. You know, yes. but he, so he would be able to explain it to me. I'm sure how that all ends the way, why it ends the way it does. But that's not in the fucking movie, so that don't count. No. So it still makes it a great movie, but there is that's a flaw. Number eight for me. <laughs> no, it is. That is. But no, you're. It's, it's fair. It's a. Inglorious Bastards may very well be number eight if it wasn't for that thing that for me just like even the end of Inglorious Bastards works really well. Because as I discussed with uh, my friends from uh, the podcast, know what asked for is in that sequence there is nothing. The two events are going to happen regardless of the other event, and they don't even know about each other. So Donnie Donowitz and the whole Operation Kino, uh, what's her name, d- doesn't even know that's happening. Well, no, She's just going to burn the fucking cinema care. down. Neither of them know about each other, and they're both going to do the same thing at the same time. So if Donnie fails, there's this thing's uh, still going to happen. That's, that's the great yeah. thing about it. You 
know, and if she fails, they're still like they don't know that there's two events going on at once, which is great storytelling because they don't rely on each other. Either way, those Germans were dying that night. Like I said, I can't run a podcast about him and not point out the flaws. That would be total That's disservice. Some Joe Blow shit, and other fans can, yeah, oh, exactly. That's some JoeBlow.com <laughs> bullshit right there. <laughs> That doesn't make the movie a bad movie. That's not what I'm saying. No, but, it just says that there are flaws in this film. If I need to put something lower than something else, then I've got to look for a flaw, and that is a glaring yeah. flaw, and that's all I'm really saying. I did dispend the belief, too. Like, I was so glad, if you count, every fucking gun is shooting the amount of bullets. So you go through all of that. You know, you go from that, that scene into the big, like, it's, it's a fucking Robert Rodriguez beyond a John Woo scene. I'm sorry, but yeah. I've seen the John Woo oh, movies. Absolutely. It's more Desperado, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and all that than it is John Woo. John Woo, yeah. like there's there'd be more lighting and shit going on and, and there'd be birds <laughs> flying. Instead, there's just white guys <laughs> flying and dying everywhere. And during that scene, like you watch that and like he was so meticulous during the whole battle scene that he forgot to be meticulous about the story before it. So I see yeah. I see your point. I don't want to agree with you, but I do. It's my only problem with the movie. But it's fair. If you're going to talk about it 10 years later, you got to point out the things that also are wrong with it. Yep. As much as we and love talking about the good I stuff, would, which we're going to get I back onto in a second. Love, I would fucking love. I'd pay $100 for a, a Blu-ray with him doing a goddamn commentary on this film where he explains it. But he doesn't do commentaries for movies he directs. No. Good for him, though. Blue- he did it for True Romance. I would love to hear that. He won't do it for his own, yeah. Yeah, he won't do it. Well, you know, I think the only reason why is because he can't stay on topic a lot of times. So we'd be listening to a scene, he'd talk about a scene, we'd be like 20 scenes into the film before he gets back to the next scene because he would start rambling on about why he picked this guy in this scene. He thinks he's above criticism a bit as well. He didn't, so he, he didn't do that in the True Romance one, though. He stayed on topic through the whole thing. Yeah. It's not because, his film. Well, it technically wasn't his yeah, film. That's yeah. what I'm saying. If, if he did an audio commentary for Django, he would, he would put it all in perspective and I probably walk away like yeah number four now number four sean asked me at the end of hateful eight what would be my question sean we've now got our new question here for him what the fuck what the fuck's <laughs> up with the ending of hate of uh Django and chain my friend just tell us Look, give Steve, it to us we wouldn't have had that awful fucking tarantino cameo in it unfortunately we'd uh, lose michael park and and john jarrett i'd sacrifice them for a more satisfactory also, ending you also lose the entire laquint dicky fucking the whole monologue from like that. i said it's a great great ending of the film i love it. but there's a hole like it it doesn't succinctly smartly move there like it's not like we time jump or anything like that but it doesn't make sense for the character why he would do that and it doesn't make sense for the whole ruse it just feels like it could have been easier like well i've got less tr- i've got less of a problem with the ruse than i have king Charles' sudden fucking morality yes. fucking epiphany yeah but <laughs> yeah it is i hate the term but it is what it is it's- the movie is a movie is there i love it don't put me off it but when i have to take something and make it a bit lesser that's it mr candy normally i would say auf wiedersehen but since what auf wiedersehen actually means is till i see you again and since i never wish to see you again to you sir i say goodbye Let's go. Come on. One more moment, Doctor. What? It's a custom here in the South. Once a business deal has concluded that the two parties shake hands, <laughs> it implies good faith. I'm not from the South. But you are! In my house, doctor. 
So I'm afraid I must insist. Insist? On what? That I shake your hand? Oh, then I'm afraid I must insist in the opposite direction. You know what I think you are? Would you think I am? No, I don't. I think you are a bad loser. And I think you're an abysmal winner. Nevertheless, hand Chickasaw County a deal ain't done until the two parties have shook hands. Even after all that paper signing don't mean shit, you don't shake my hand. If I don't shake your hand, you're gonna throw away $12,000? I don't think so. Mr. Pooch. If she tries to leave here before this nigger-loving German shakes my hand, you cut her ass down. You really want me to shake your hand? I insist. If you insist? One thing he rarely, rarely fucks up ever, those are his needle drops. Masterful. And again, he is able to combine things that you don't feel are right, like 100 Black Coffins, a hardcore rap song written by Jamie Foxx, no less, that is in the middle of the, the shit of the movie, and you're like, this absolutely fucking fits. There was no rap in this time, but it absolutely fucking fits. So, we will start with Mr. Smith this time. Where does this soundtrack rank for you, and then what is your favorite needle drop in the film? It's not my favorite soundtrack, again, you know. You fucking hater. I will totally, <laughs> I will, I will totally applaud Tarantino, though. I actually thought that was, it's quite simple, but I thought it was quite ballsy that he started to film with a thing from Django. You know what I mean? It's such an iconic yeah. movie with such an iconic song, and just say, I'm fucking taking that. Well, I think he thought people like you and Sean and myself, who have maybe seen this film, will know what he's saying, and we'll those think, who don't will be like, oh, that's yeah, a cool no, fucking right. song. No, like, wow, yeah. yeah right. You know, he's just playing yeah. on the, the intelligence of both it, or whoever could be in the theater. Yeah, and so there's some good stuff on the soundtrack. But there's, I don't like that John Legend track. Who did that to you? Which one is it? Who did that cool to song? you? I think is what it's called. Yeah, it's not even available like anymore. Like John Legend pulled the. The shit, oh, yeah. you can't even like I'm... listen to it. Uh, no. Neither is 100 Black Coffins, unless you own the fucking Which, soundtrack. You can't even get that on iTunes. 25 songs that weren't even included on the soundtrack. If you go well, to that, like, you know, yeah. So, yeah, you know, so that's patchy. I'll call it a patchy set. <laughs> a patchy, I know. That's Aldo. Yeah, Aldo Rainsy Apache. Sorry. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's not. It's, it's not my favorite soundtrack. My favorite, I mean, obviously, the Day of Anger moment when Django has to shoot is completely badass. But I've got a hand it to the jit. I can't remember. I can't pronounce the guy's name. I've got a name. Jim Price. That's it. I, I would have pronounced that totally wrong. So you thank you, thank you very much for saying that for me because I would have completely butchered that then. 
We interrupt this program to correct a name pronunciation. The proper way to say his name is Croce. We apologize to the Jim Croce family for this oversight. We now return you to our episode. That is my Stuck in the Middle with You, that song. I don't like Stuck in the Middle with You. I don't like it when I hear it on the radio, but I love it in the film. Whereas I've got a name is just, I love it. And one bit of that, when that's playing in the film, I just love, because that's like a montage of them traveling in the snow yeah. and all the, you see the Oh, it's just so great. But the camera is on them too. And they just look at each other and they nod to each other. And then the camera goes behind them and they just go out of the stable into the frontier. And that's just, that's such a romantic Western vibe that I almost get the feeling he's had that in his head for 20 years. Just that little four seconds, you know. I want to... It says Butch casting the Sundance Kid moment. It's just such a great shot of them. They, you know, like say Django looks at King Charles, they both go, and then it cuts to behind them, and they just go out into the frontier, and that's just, you know, like as a lover of westerns, that's just the speaking the land. You know, it's it's the language else so eloquently spoken, isn't it? You know. Visually. Yeah, I've got a name is my favorite. Mr. Wheeler, where's this soundtrack rank and your favorite needle drop? Uh, it's my second, only to the Kill Bill soundtracks. So when you put those together and then there's so much stuff missing. There's so many songs missing from all of these. Like um, when you go back and you start looking, there's little pieces here and there that are missing that they never put on the soundtracks, either for licensing issues or space or whatever. But my favorite one is from They Call Me Trinity, the Trinity title song that's over the end credits. One with all the whistling and then... It kind of goes in, but it bookends with the Django theme so well. And I realized when I was watching the other night how much I miss when movies had theme songs. They don't yeah. have that anymore, and yeah. a lot of the Westerns do. And another one that is in there that you can barely hear, and I finally picked out where it was the other night. Um, there's one by Ennio Morricone called The Rito Finale. It's not on the soundtrack. It's from a Charles Bronson movie called Violent City mm-hmm. that they use. And it's an awesome movie. Um, I just got a brand new Kino Lorber Blu-ray of it. That movie's killer with Bronson. He's playing an assassin. In it, but the music is great through the entire thing. It's one of Marconi's better non-Western scores. My other one is Jim Christ. Sorry to interrupt again, but the correct pronunciation is Croce. The Church of Tarantino podcast begs the forgiveness of the Croce family for Mr. Wheeler's assassination of your family's name. To avoid further instances, we have enrolled Mr. Wheeler into an intensive linguistics program. Now back to the episode. I got a name. Um, It's a cool song that fit well. It's got like a Western feel to it. And then the story about it, that he died and the movie came up, that song came up the day after he died. It was like released publicly the day after. So like when you throw that story in with it, which I know Tarantino loves the stories along with his music that he picks he always has personal stories and yeah. you know i think that's why i think we talked about it on the other podcast i got into collecting like the seven inch records and stuff because of that same stuff where i i feel like i connect with it more because of that yeah so that's one of the the ones um the rap stuff like i tolerate it it's i'm not a rap person i mean he could have thrown house of pain jump around in there and i would you know I'm like what the fuck like you know, so gonna... you, you gotta admit that hundred black cask is a thousand black cask. That's a that's a. I mean, if you're gonna put a rap, and that's the only well, that's not one of them. But if you're gonna put a rap song in, well, that really it, hits it at the fits, right spot. Like it is such a badass moment. That fits the movie, and um, the, even the Johnny Cash remix, it it fits the tone of the film. And then the Freedom song that I think after he gets the horse and he's riding away. Yes, that that's was the I one I know. meant. That's the one I meant, I think. That's the one you don't like? I don't like that fucking song. That don't work for That's me. That's the opening, like, I guess that was, like, the first song played at Woodstock, and it's actually, like, live from Woodstock. I didn't know that till recently. I just, I found the 7-inch of that and just purchased it recently. Uh, but, yeah, I'm buying Is that the one where he says, I mean, call the police, call the coroner? No. That's the one I mean, sorry. That's the That's John, John Legend, Legend one. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting muddled up. Yeah, sorry yeah, about that. A, I, 
apologizing. There's the other one too, like I don't brother DJ. I, I don't like that one. There's a few of them on here that I don't like, but he made up for it with all the spaghetti western stuff where it's like a greatest hits. You could go right down that thing and like go find those soundtracks. And I mean, Steve find the movies admit, too. Yeah. 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 Find the, like there's a whole bunch of these movies that I would have never seen if it wasn't for them being on here where I went and like, fuck is Trinity? I'm like, oh, this is the movie my dad's been talking about this funny as hell for all these <laughs> the years. I'm getting dragged around the desert. And the songs are killer. I have it on vinyl and like I play probably about once a month in here where I'm working and like I'll play it. It's, you know, beyond what's on here because the rest of the score is killer. But so there you go. There's my couple. Like the pine trees lining the winding road. I've got a name, I've got a name Like a singing bird in the croaking toad I've got a name, I've got a name And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream that he kept here all right well we'll close this out talking about this fucking cast we kind of described it it's a powerhouse cast jamie fox in my opinion his best performance christoph waltz once again his second time in a tarantino film academy award both times. You've got the great Samuel L. fucking Jackson, and as we talked about, Leonardo DiCaprio, who I believe should have won the award. I think we kind of talked about that. Now, has there been a better brought-to-the-front hero since The Bride in his films than Django Freeman? If you look back at all the other films, a lot of them, you know, when we get to Inglorious Bastards, it's like, you know, we've, we've got two different sections. We're watching three, four different characters go through the film, and I know that both of you love Kill Bill, so I'm asking two people whose favorite, well, I mean, Steven, his favorite film when we were talking about it was Kill- it changes mind. it was Kill Bill Kill Bill's fuck, like number seven now Bill. like it's a fuck Kill Bill <laughs> Indiana Jones 4 uh, is better than Kill Bill <laughs> and we've got great villains we've got the amazing villain that is Leo we've got amazing turns complete different turns especially Waltz now becoming a hero as king and then we've got I mean, he's played bad guys before, but is there a more detestable performance than Samuel Jackson as Steven? Like, most fans hate Steven. I mean, we can get on board with his other bad guys because they're just more like they walk the line kind of bad guys. Steven's reprehensible from the beginning. In your opinion, gentlemen, who gave the best performance in this film? Mr. Smith, I believe we're up to you. And you know what? It, I'll also go out there and say it could also be Mr. Don Johnson. All these extras that came through the film that you liked as well. Christoph Waltz for me. I think he's better in this than he is in Inglourious Bastards. I think it's very much almost like one. I almost I don't mean it quite like this, but I almost want to say you sort of see the film through his eyes for quite a bit of it. And I think with Inglourious Bastards, it, he's a bit he's a bit uneven in Inglourious. Like one minute he's the scariest fucker on the planet. Next he's a pantomime villain twirling his moustache almost. One minute he's strangling what's her face next minute you know that's all a bit uh, all over the place <laughs> whereas in this I think it's just a lot more of a grounded performance and I think he sells it a lot more um, confidently for me. Although I like Inglourious Bastards more than this you know so, so I'm not really it's not really like a, a gripe as such but I just think he gives a better performance in this. There's just little things about Inglourious I'm like funny thing is Tarantino writes better villains than he does heroes anyway. 
I think. Do you think it's because we get people get to play villains a little bit more deliciously than they yeah. do heroes? Except well, you know, I would say well, that Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain really plays a great hero. Like he really leans John into Ruth. eccentricities that most aren't most heroes yeah. don't. Where Schultz has to play, you know, you know, because we don't want it to I don't know, maybe for some reason, even in most shows and movies you watch, the hero, especially if they're not an anti-hero, usually has a pattern and a line and they have to walk. They always have to seem like they're well, they good. are predictable, you know, aren't they're, they? they're even that's the good thing about and a villain. Kind of, it? I yeah. can be unpredictable. So I get that about Inglorious. But I think that's why the anti-hero has uh, risen yeah. because we like the unpredictability of the yeah. anti-hero. We like someone who's got some flaws too and can at sometimes do a, give me all you got! Fucking <laughs> Al Pacino, like lose their fucking mind sometimes. Yeah, so uh, for me, we're talking about a film full of amazing characters and amazing actors as well. For me, I just, like I said, watching it recently again, I just think that's Crystal Waltz's best performance out of the two Tarantino movies. And I think I like the character more, maybe as well. Maybe that's part of it too. There's just a vulnerability to him. He's just more relatable. So for me, I think that, yeah, he's my character for the for the film. I think there's a lot of depth to him. Like, how did he go from becoming a dentist to a bounty hunter? We know that his wife is buried in Texas and everything, and I think that's some of the vulnerability that you're seeing. But yeah. allow me to report on the the whole Inglorious Bastard saying part of the charm of that character is that he's all over the place and you don't know where he's going to go next. And we know that Scott has a hard on for Hans Landa as well, and I'm sure he'll agree that you don't that's part of the charm <laughs> of that character where maybe that that didn't connect with you as much as it did with well, that's Scott. what yeah that's kind of what I'm getting at I mean I mean Hans Lander is fucking you know he's an amazing character I, I'm not saying that but like I say I think it's what just what warms me to King Schultz is that there, there is a vulnerability to him and it's more sort of nuanced yeah. performance and also well I don't know what it is about the, like, the Calvin candy and Schultz being a dentist I don't know that there's some fucking crazy subtext which going on that Calvin Candy's teeth are all kind of fucked up as well, aren't they? Am I right? Yes, yes, yes. I talk about that in the episode. I only listen to ones that I'm on. Go back and listen. Listen to other. Yes, that's true. No, I know you don't. (laughs) Fuck that. Don't on. I I I actually have no doubt. (laughs) You sound fucking great. How insightful I am. Turn it off. Yeah. I mean, how's he supposed to get off? How's he supposed to get a wank out if he can't hear his own voice? <laughs> That's true as well. That's the tragedy of it all. So is that your best performance and your favorite character from the film? Yes. Is Mr. Schultz. Mr. Wheeler? I'm going to put the two questions together, too. Leo. I think everyone else is great, but Leo went to like this new place with his performance. And he's having the time of his life with it. You can see how much fun he's having on screen with it. Despite all the you know word from the set that he was uncomfortable with a lot of the subject matter and everything. Um, I think I sent Scott. There's a comedian named... Roy Wood Jr. Did I send that to you? I've seen that. Yeah, no, to me. I, I actually saw his and stand-up. And I totally, yep. like, I'm going to paraphrase it, which the guy is a brilliant comedian, but he's a black comedian, and he was talking, he called Leo a black ally for this part in the film because he thinks to accurately tell black people's stories that they need to have white actors doing heinous shit on film, evil white actors in civil in civil right movies and stuff. And he made, you know, like, made a whole joke and stuff about it, which I wish you could just play this right here, stop, and then play it, <laughs> yeah. and then people be like, fucking brilliant stuff but he brings up the fact that like you know he had to go to the set every day and call jamie fox the n-word to his face over and over and over again and then in front of samuel jackson punchline dude is that tom cruise does his own stunts but so does leonardo dicaprio 
and Leonardo DiCaprio, I didn't notice it until Roy Wood brought it up. He didn't share the screen with another black man for 10 years almost after doing this movie. Like, it was a lot of years where he didn't do any scenes with it. You know, that, that was part of the joke thing for it. But my favorite character is um, the only reason that Jamie Foxx, who hasn't had a good movie before this or after that that I've liked him in, the only reason he's so good in this is because he's sparring off with fucking DiCaprio, firing on every cylinder plus through this entire movie. And you've got Waltz in there too, like Steve said, that is, he's also firing on all cylinders and everybody around, like everybody that's on a fucking horse in there is just every character. It's like, I swear to God, like all these character, all these character actors saw what could happen with Inglorious Bastards and they all brought their A-game to this film. So there's no wasted anything in it. And Leo just chews up everything that he touches. I mean, the little comments and stuff, there's, there's a scene where they're, they're toasting and he's like, pros, German. And like he just, you know, like that's his response to because he just, I don't know if that was in the script or if he just said that because he doesn't, you know, like they said, he's not a, he doesn't know because <laughs> he's kind of ignorant a little bit too, but I, I still don't understand. I would love to know why he didn't win for this. But... Mm, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But I think yeah. Jamie Foxx, he's got a real humility about him in this film. I yeah. just mean he has. If that would have been Will Smith or someone else, they would have fucked it up. The way that he is about going and getting his wife, because there's a romance that's tied into all of this as well. Between mm. all the blood, the guts, the killing, the the racism, all of it, the cool music, there's there's, there's, you story, know, that, yeah. there's that romantic part. And whenever any of that comes up, you just see the look on his face that Will Smith went ahead. Uh, and Will yeah, Smith no, would have just like, absolutely. where's my fucking wife and who am I going to slap because of it? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> or not even either of these guys, you know, could have, another actor. I just think Jamie Foxx just brought the right kind of subtlety and humility. Yeah, that quiet Texas draw. I think it also shows that Jamie Foxx, he has that ability to be a great actor. Yeah, and Tarantino does this in a lot of films. He brings it out. And then I don't know what it is about other directors. Maybe they don't have the the cachet that Tarantino does. He gets this amazing performance from Jamie Foxx. He should have also been it's nominated. It's because he's a writer. It's his best performance since Ray and better than Ray. And he gets Jamie Foxx to play in Unreal. Now Jamie Foxx is a movie star. And I've seen some of his other movies. He's okay. He's funny. You know, he's this and that. But he's not Django. He is not as good as he was in Django. And he has the range to do that. Maybe these other directors would get him. Just He just gets the money and, you know, just takes the big paycheck because of his accolades he has. But I would love to see him with Tarantino again doing something else because he he is spectacular when he's with him. There's a few of us who have picked a few people who haven't been great with Tarantino and whatever, but Jamie Foxx is one of those who absolutely star rose because he played Django. And like you said, he played it. He starts off barely talking as a slave and then is the hero by the end of the film. Like the transformation, his arc is unbelievable and he sells it to us. And like you said, he is going toe to toe in every scene he's in. No one else has the back and forth that he does. He's got to talk with Waltz. He now has to go toe to toe with Steven, who is Samuel Jackson. He's got to go toe to toe with Leo. Like he has to go with three great actors, all Academy Award winners, and he's bouncing with them and doing it wonderfully in this film. And since then, he's just Jamie Foxx in a movie, which is so disappointing of how good he is in this goddamn movie. I think some of it is the fact that Tarantino's a writer-director, but he gets this buy-in from the actors like he did with Uma on The Bride, where he brought her in. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson did that with Paul Dano in um, There Will Be Blood. How the fuck in one of your first movies do you square off with Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> and outshine him on... You get the yeah. actor to, do, to, to buy into the character and to the performance and forget that Daniel Day-Lewis is there i read a little bit about it you know where that's one of those performances like how the fuck do you do that i can there's half the half of hollywood would want that role but they can't do it 
And he don't comes get me in talk. Just, don't get me talking about that fucking movie. You don't like that movie either? <laughs> I'm kidding. <God. laughs> Punch Drunk Love is his probably his favorite one. I just want to... <laughs> fucking Magnolia fan over here. Oh, he, he's, a huge, he's a huge Magnolia fan. <laughs> he loves oh, the shit, Yeah, fuck. I'm in trouble. Uh, if well, you don't like that movie, you still have to admit that Paul Dano likes is just on no, fire I, I, in all I, those I, scenes. I, I don't dislike that movie, but I think with Tarantino again, because he's a writer, you know, you've got your writer on set. You know, he knows how he who he's, he's cast the right person because he's said it himself a million times. You know. A director for high would just have read the script and gone right. Who's yep. playing this guy? You know, where he Tarantino's is an actor. like, hmm. <laughs> he is. He's he a is horrible an actor. actor, but he Who? understands it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know he understands acting. Yeah, he can't act for toffee. Uh, well, you know, I think him being a cinephile, he understands the performances well, he's looking I mean, for. Well, look at the track record. Yes. Oh, again, yeah, 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 yeah. he gets buy-in from everybody that everybody that sets foot on those on on his set. He gets hundred percent buy-in from them. I mean, he took John Travolta from doing Look Who's Talking. Believed in him, knew what he is capable of, and showed the world again who John Travolta the actor was. Same thing with Robert Forster. But also launches, let's be honest, Samuel Jackson. As far as many movies he was in with Spike Lee, Samuel Jackson becomes well known for of being in fucking Pulp Fiction. Spike Lee. And those two guys, but now, and everyone else just jumps in like a Bill Carradine. Yeah. Bill Carradine's a genius in, in Kill Bill. Like, there's so many actors you go, oh my God, they were amazing in this film. Yeah. Pam Greer. Who the fuck knew Pam Greer outside of her? And has Pam Greer been better nope. than anything in Jackie Brown? Like, she should have been nominated as well. She, she really, she really so should have these, these actors know, the actors know if you're going to sign up for a Tarantino film and he wants you, you have to bring your A game. Or you get in the line, or you get in some list that other people don't like of certain people being in, our, in the films, like Donnie Donald, which we won't get into him again. So anyways, Eli Roth, stick with, stick with doing a horror movies. Growing up the son of a, of a huge plantation owner in Mississippi puts a white man in contact with a whole lot of black faces i spent my whole life here right here in Campbellland, surrounded by black faces i seen them every day day in day out i i only had one question why don't they kill us <laughs> now right out there on that porch Three times a week for 50 years, old Ben here would shave my daddy with a straight razor. Now, if I was old Ben, I would have cut my daddy's goddamn throat, and it wouldn't have taken me no 50 years to do it neither. <laughs> but he never did. Why not? You see, the science of phrenology is crucial to understanding the, the separation of our two species. In the skull of the African here, the area associated with submissiveness is larger than any human or any other subhuman species on planet Earth. Examine this piece of skull here. <laughs> You'll notice three distinct dimples. Here, here, 
and here. Now, if I was holding the skull of, a, of, a, of an Isaac Newton or, or Galileo, these three dimples would be found in the area of the skull most associated with creativity. But this is the skull of old Ben. And in the skull of old Ben, unburdened by genius, these three dimples exist in the area of the skull most associated with civility. Now, bright boy, I will admit you are pretty clever. But if I took this hammer here and I bashed in your skull with it, you would have the same three dimples in the same place as old Ben. All right, Mr. Smith, your final thoughts on this film as it hits 10 years old. I'll keep it simple. Yeah, okay, that's on the lower end of my top nine. As we've already pointed out, his worst is, well, that's not his worst, but... You know, his worst would be better than a lot of directors' best. So that's well, testament to him, you know, as a director, really, that even even if I don't think that's one of his best, that's fucking great. Yeah, I'm surprised. Is it his top-earning film at the box office? Top-earning. It's the top-earning film of his catalog, and it's the top-grossing Western of all time at 430-something million. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, wow. Well, excuse us. Wow. What was that? Sorry. <laughs> he said he'll cover it with his his little talk. Right? <laughs> Our bad. I'll cut oh, this God. out. Sorry. Oh, just shut the fuck up. Sorry. No. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I do think that's a great movie. I saw it like I say, this is the one where every time I watch it, I like it more. Where most of his films, I'm just confirming what I already believe. That's what I'm sort of saying. I think, oh, you know, Django's not one of my favourites. But I guess I'll watch it again. And then I watch it and I'm like, well, pretty fucking good. You know, so yeah, not my favourite, but still an absolute banger of a movie. Mr. Wheeler, your cinema speculation on Django Unchained as it hits 10. I'm going to preface this. This this is my own opinion and experience with the film. It's based off from that completely. The first time I saw Django, I uh, was alone on opening day, first showing matinee, and I loved it. I went back five more times, each time with someone new, to get a new perspective on the way home about the movie. Half loved the film and half thought it was just okay or horrible. I felt at the time that it was his new masterpiece, even after his own proclamation at the end of Inglorious Bastards. I went into Django with extremely high expectations following Inglorious Bastards. I was expecting blood, violence, racism, gunfights, Samuel Jackson saying fuck a lot, and bad people doing bad things to more bad people. I got all that, but I noticed in the film that there was something that had been missing from his film since Jackie Brown, and that was heart. That drive to do something for someone else out of love, the careless kindness that Max Cherry will go against everything normal and what he knows is right in his life because he's in love with Jackie and wants to help her. At the heart of this tale was a romance. Not while I've got my freedom, not while I've got my gun. It's better than most Hollywood romances starring Jennifer Aniston and Julie Roberts that I've seen, minus true romance. I'm just saying. Um, the film was a bold step for Tarantino in storytelling, character development, even the dialogue seems sharper than his useful, playful banner. So many layers to the film, its scenes and its characters, that it's a lot to unpack in a three-hour film and first viewing and really absorb everything that's created for us to enjoy. While I say all this, remember that one of the best villains in the history of cinema, the Nazi Jew hunter Hans Landa, was the rotten core of the last film, Inglorious Bastards, and was so evil that he got top billing over even Hitler on the evil scale. 
His newest creation for Django, Calvin Candy, was on every level just as vile and despicable as Lando while almost being lovable and funny during repeated viewings. That's fucking depth that you don't see in most films. People spend their entire life trying to, you know, get that on film, and he manages to do it film after film, it seems like. Django Unchained is Tarantino's most financially successful film. It's also the most successful Western of all time. It made $425 million worldwide. His second place film is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that only did three hundred seventy four million but it's just 50 million less with all that money you talk to people such as steve my brother it's one of their lowest rated films and you know when you talk to a regular cinema goer which i do a lot i talk to people's ears off about the film all the time i noticed that like normal people haven't even seen pulp fiction you'll have normal conversations and it's like you haven't seen pulp fiction well have you seen django yes but they've all seen django I don't know if it's because, you know, considering that Pulp Fiction is one of the most popular and revered films in the last 30 years by any director, how did that happen? And I think the reason that this movie was so popular is a few key reasons. Django is definitely his most accessible mainstream film of the nine that he's directed, despite it being a Western, which is some people just don't like Western. You've got action, drama, horror, adventure, romance, comedy, suspense, exploitation. It's a historical film. Finally, it's also an amazing Western, and some people even consider it a superhero film. The film manages to check off every major box and have just a little bit of something for everyone over the age of 17, and it gets better and better with repeated viewings. The second thing I noticed, and this is like my personal experience from it, the black audience came out in droves for this movie um, that usually don't come to his films or to Westerns. At least in my Minnesota cinema, the back-to-back opening night viewings was about 75% black and 25% white, which I've never seen in a movie other than Friday when I went and saw that in the theaters. But I saw Bastards and Hateful Eight on their opening days, and the number was more about 5% black and 95% white for both of those. And even less for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For Django, the black audience hung on every word and erupted into cheers when Django shot John Brittle and gave the... I like the way you die, boy line, and gave a standing ovation at the end of the movie on that opening night, which is still something I've never seen in any other film since. I mean, black audiences are more lively than any white audience that I've ever been to a film with, which I agree with his his statement at the beginning of his new book. The connection they had with the Django character is what makes, in the way that Tarantino is able to tap into that, is what makes him that one in 10,000 filmmaker. Once word of mouth hit for that, how crazy and cool the film was, everybody went to see it. Or they went to see The Fucking Hobbit, which beat Django at the box office on its opening weekend. Yes, Django is actually number three at the box office on its opening weekend. Although it almost beat The Hobbit, it would have, but the Weinsteins put it in 1,000 less theaters than The Hobbit. So, fucking Weinsteins again. Um, It was number one on its second weekend, its third weekend, and number two on its fourth, and just kept uh, building steam from there. I guess with Quentin, he doesn't half-ass anything he does in his films. With Kill Bill, he wanted to make the biggest samurai kung fu of all time, and he did it. He also wanted the biggest car chase film of all time with Death Proof. With this, I think he wanted to make the biggest, boldest, violent, most revisionalist Western with a black slave hero in the South. I mean, he did all of that. And I don't really think you can gauge the legacy of this film. It's not even in its teenage years yet. It's only 10 years old. It's still being discovered by a lot of people, and that legacy is still growing much more than his other films for some reason. It's the one that, like I said, when you talk to people, it's the one that they've all seen over everything else. Steve is not going to agree with this, but I think someday we're going to talk about it in the same breath as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and Unforgiven as one of the greatest Westerns. But I don't think that that does this film justice because how vastly different this film is from all of those films and its uncanny ability to stand on its own. 
I hope that in 25 years, my grandkids will discover the film the way I found my dad's old VHS copy of Fistful of Dollars and fell in love with the genre. Um, it may take as long for that legacy to be realized for this film, though I can't imagine it being more than two weeks at most. And with all of, all of this going on, it's a masterwork on screen, but it's still only my third favorite Tarantino film. I count six shots, nigga. I count two guns, nigga. You said in 76 years on this plantation, you've seen all manner shit done to niggas. But I noticed. You didn't mention kneecap. <laughs> 76 years, Steven. How many niggas you think you see come and go? Huh? 7,000? 8,000? 9,000? Every single word that came out of Calvin Candy's mouth was nothing but horse shit. But he was right by one thing. I am that one nigga in 10,000. You motherfucker. Oh, Jesus, let me kill this nigga. You ain't gonna get away with this, Jango. They gonna catch your black ass. You gonna be on the water posters now, nigga. Everybody else is gonna be looking for you. You can run, nigga, but they gonna find your ass. And when they do, oh, Lord, what they gonna do to your ass? They ain't gonna just kill you, nigga. You done fucked up. And that's a wrap on not only our very special Django Unchained 10th Anniversary Retrospective, but also on the first season of the Church of Tarantino podcast. I would once again like to thank my panel of Mr. Sean Wheeler, CEO of Scareflare Records and host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, and Mr. Steve Smith, my Cheeky Bastard Podcast co-host, for joining me to help celebrate and look back at this landmark film from Quentin Tarantino. I want to give a special thanks to Miss Electric, whose amazing song, Love Song of Vengeance, from her 2022 EP, My Crazy 88, she so graciously allowed us to use as the opening and closing theme song for all of our anniversary specials. Now, you can find the links to all of my guest socials and podcasts in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So I hope you'll join me again next week as we kick off Season 2 titled Under the Influence. As new and old special guests help me take a look at the films that influenced our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino, as I try to answer the question, did he reference those films or blatantly rip them off? So from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank each and every guest, listener, and fan of this podcast. Your support of this show means more to me than I can ever properly express. I am humbled and honored that you take time out of your lives to listen, and I hope you'll continue on this amazing journey through the Tarantinoverse with me. So until next season, I am the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Who made this goddamn shit? Willard's wife. You make your own goddamn match. Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag, I could have cut it better than this. What about you, Robert? Can you see? Not too good. I mean, if I don't move my head, I can see you pretty good, more or less. But when I start riding, the bag's moving all over, and I'm riding blind. I just made mine worse. Anybody bring any extra bags? No, nobody brought an extra bag. I'm just asking. Do we have to wear them when we ride? Oh, well, shit fire. 
If you don't wear them as you ride up, that just defeats the purpose. Well, I can't see in this fucking thing. I can't breathe in this fucking thing, and I can't ride in this fucking thing. Well, fuck all y'all. I'm going home. Y'all watch my wife work all day, get 30 bags together for you ungrateful sons of bitches, and all I can hear is criticize, criticize, criticize. From now on, don't ask me your mind for nothing. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.